female co-host to host entirely on your own so welcome and I can tell folks out there a little bit about yourself as we're going to talk about a lot of musicians that focus on vocals and experimentation with harmony and uh, you consider yourself a bit of a musician yourself is that right? Uh, Sure casually. Casually as in you have you know a few hundred songs recorded and you have a SoundCloud page with many 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 views. I, I would say you're you're quite accomplished as a casual musician. Yeah, I mean, if you count the hundreds of views of my family, then yes. Um, <laughs> I, was, I was more of a musician in my childhood than as an adult. So okay. yeah, lengthy, lengthy casual career, not so much of a deep one. Okay. Right. Well, having a big family to boost one's streams is, is no uh, cheating in my book. So <laughs> I, I would I would consider you the best, uh, the most accomplished musician that I, I know personally. So oh. keep that in mind as we talk about today's picks. And they are, they are the, from the Jesse series, volume two by Jacob Collier or Clear. And also Hyperpotamus' Delta, which we will talk about second. So I'll give some basic specs on the Jacob Collier album first, and then we'll talk about him generally. So the album is, this is a guy who has won four Grammys, which I need to explain and defend on a, on a show called Out of Obscurity that focuses on obscure music. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But first, the album itself. The album is, as I mentioned, Jesse Volume 2. That's D-J-E-S-S-E. And it's part of a part, apparently a four-part series. There are three currently released, and I believe the third one is nominated for Best Album Grammy of some kind. This came out in 2019. It's got 16 tracks, 71 minutes long, which is a full half an hour longer than the other two in the series so far. I would consider it a, a folk, electronic jazz, and R&B. We'll talk about genre and later. You can find it on the Decca label and streaming all all throughout on all major platforms, I would consider this a very popular album. However, it has received only 16 user reviews on All Music Guide. So, Hannah Backward, what do you think of Jacob Collier? Where did you first hear of him? And uh, what are your general thoughts? I believe I first heard of him on YouTube. I think most people did. I don't remember which song it was, but, you know, it's the... Standard style, he started out with with the multiple Jacob Collier heads all kind of <laughs> superimposed on top of each other with each of them doing part of the harmony, which, mm-hmm. you know, that's a pretty easy way to get me to, to love you is by doing something like that. Because not only is harmony one of my most important considerations when not deciding to like music, but when liking it, but also I like to be able to pick out each voice in the harmony. So being able to have like a visual representation of each voice was awesome. The medium helped him mm-hmm. in gaining mm-hmm. me as a fan. And normally you wouldn't consider yourself a music video fan in general, would you? No. In fact, I 
almost never watch music videos. So I think we can talk about his videos then. For those of you who haven't seen, I would also agree that the uh, technical skill in not only the music but also in compiling the video is really, really, very impressive. In that each uh, each part of the song that he's recording, including some of some songs such as one we'll talk about, Moon River. I, the statistic is that he recorded himself five thousand times for one song, <laughs> and it took him six months, I believe, uh, to finish recording one song. We can call this. He's a wizard of logic. He's a Logic, it only took him six months to record 5,000 voices? I'm not sure if that was exactly the one. He, he was I was on a video, also an interview. He's got many interviews with various people on, such as the Build series and a, a guy called June Lee, who's apparently also a very good harmony expert. And we'll talk about all this. But his videos, are you can see them even proportionally to, the, to, their, to their prominence in the mix. All of, all of the different parts of the recording. So I was really impressed, really impressed by that. And I can see why he is uh, very popular, which in, in contrast, we'll talk about compared to the our, our, our acapella second pick, Hyperpotamus, who is really more of a kind of a one take kind of a guy and do it all, all at once. So I think this is, uh, it shows a lot of not only skill, but a lot of preparation and uh, technical ability and editing ability to to line them all up. And it's visually very, very impressive, as, as you mentioned. And I think uh, comparing the general YouTube videos, which made him the superstar that he is, uh, he's also, to, to talk about a topic that we have covered here on Out of Obscurity previously with other hosts, is the NPR's Tiny Desk Concerts. Uh, Jacob Collier has done two of these. I don't know if you've seen either of them. but. I you did? Okay. What do you think of his, his tiny desk work? Great. I liked it. <laughs> so, I mean, it's, it's, it's like a, when you have an artist like that who does a tiny desk show, you're like, how, is that, how does that work? Mm-hmm. Because, if, you know, if you have 5,000, not that all of his tracks have 5,000 separate voices in them, although a lot of it, he releases his logic sessions, and a lot of them do have a lot, a lot of tracks. <laughs> Maybe not 5,000, but it sure looks like it. Anyway, you know, how are you going to... How are you going to replicate that when it's just you? I don't know if this was a tiny desk concert in which he kind of cheated by like recording him five times himself five times in the same room. Mm-hmm. Was it? I don't remember. Oh well, so there's two different versions. There's one one that's with a band, and there's another where he is in his room that, because of uh, COVID. I believe it's the, all of the tiny desks of 2020 have been home concerts. So the second one is where he he appears as himself, like five or ten times playing all the instruments at the same time in the same room. So there's, yeah. there's a lot of video editing wizardry along with the usual logic wizardry. So he's just a, he's just an all-around wizard in all these yeah. things. Yeah, oh, I mean, as if it isn't enough to be able to play every instrument and have a ridiculous vocal range. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I'm bored. I'm going to learn how to video edit also. But not right. just video edit, but video edit really good. Um, <laughs> yeah. So the my, my co-hosts for our Tiny Desk uh, scheduled digression, as we call them, they agreed that the aesthetics for a Tiny Desk video is that uh, generally stripping down what's a more complicated studio track, and that's to have a different version of it that uh, gives you new insights to either how it was made or different parts of it, or to see whether you could survive as a busker, if your favorite musician could could hack it as a busker working on the street or not. Um, yeah. do, do, you, do you share that opinion, that it's best when there's a, a a very different and stripped back, maybe even more acoustic version of a song that you like. Is it better? 
Well, is it uh, is that the best way to do a uh, tiny desk concert such as that? I mean, if that's the purpose of the tiny desk concerts, I don't know if it is. Um, well, yeah, sure. I, I, I disagreed with them. Interesting. So. I don't think it's better. <laughs> Um, okay. it's, it's interesting to see a you know a different layout and a different take on the song, and I would argue that even five Jacob Colliers in the same room with video editing wizardry is still extremely stripped down for him. <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe he can't busk with himself, um, but like yeah, that compared to what he's usually doing on his tracks, it still counts. Okay. All right. Fair enough. So you mentioned uh, multi instrumental mastery. And in some cases, virtuosity. I would certainly say that he's a virtuoso singer yeah. and probably pretty good at some of the other instruments. How good would you say is, is he at piano? I'm not the one to judge. Let, let's put it this way. I would give up a lot to play my best instrument as well as Jacob Collar plays his worst one. Wow. What do you think his worst instrument is? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I haven't seen it, but I'm sure that it's still pretty good. You know, I don't I don't go delving into the background of his releases to see what instruments on each song he plays himself and which instruments he doesn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not, I'm never sure what he's playing with, although I think it's most of it. Yeah. I think for most songs, he'll say when someone is featured, such as on the on the Jesse Two album, Steve Vai makes an appearance on guitar, and right. that, that that tells that should tell anybody uh, a lot about what to expect if you, if you know who Steve Vai is. <clears throat> I remember so. if it was Steve Vai or another another guest, but I was playing this album for my mom in the car, and she just exclaims out of nowhere, like that sounds like blah blah blah. I don't remember who it was. <laughs> Might have been him. So no, whoever think- it was, they they were. Uh, a style recognizable enough for my mom to just come out with it and know that it wasn't Jacob Collier playing. Okay, okay. It was Chris Thiel, sorry. Okay. Chris Thiel. Okay, yeah, yeah. She would know him. We'll talk about all these things, that this is a more folksy album than his other others uh, in the series. I understand there's a parental divide in appreciation of him, that your mom likes him and your dad doesn't. You care to... Yeah, well, I think, I think both of them would like him if... I guess we'll come to this, too. I don't know if you like him. I I don't know how anybody could not really, but especially my dad, because he's into everything that that Jacob Collier does. Okay. You know, he's, he's a harmony slut like I am. Um, (laughs) You know, he likes world, he likes world music. He likes jazz. He likes classical. He Mm -hmm. likes virtuosity, which my mom doesn't Mm. generally, or she doesn't sit there and care about it. He likes crazy time signatures. He likes interestingness. Like you, you know that he hates repetitiveness because you've come up against him on that. Yes. And these albums are the opposite of repetitiveness. So I think I've just chosen the wrong time. <laughs> if so, your audience isn't receptive, there's nothing you can do. Yeah, if it's a bad time. Go also, ahead. I started with Volume Three, which was my fault, mm-hmm. um, because he doesn't like pop music really, at least that not that kind of repetitive beat pop music. And it's yeah. also my least favorite album. So I I just third, it had just come out and I was excited about it. I'm like let's listen to Jacob Collier, and this is the one that's in my head. And it was just and, you know once my dad's made up his mind about something, it's that's it. <laughs> It's hard to change change a man's mind. That's certainly true. Yeah, so um, I think the parental divide is false, truly. <laughs> okay, that it, with time and more exposure, they could all they could all like it. And in terms of whether I do or not, I'm going to play the cards close to my vest for now, and uh, reveal gradually what I what I think in full full detail. But I I'm, think that I'm sure I agree. Offend me. <laughs> of course, of course, that's <laughs> inevitable. The third album, the third in the series, the third in the Jesse series, I would also agree is more R&B, which is, I guess, more pop 
Can I think? R&B is a better way to put it. Yeah. Okay. Could rub people the wrong way who are not into that kind of music. And I would, I will openly admit that I am not. Where to go from here? Sleeping on my dream sounds like disco, and that would, that's a death. <laughs> oh my death gosh! There's nothing. Sounds like disco. It's over forever. Nothing worse. There's a there's a death knell. So so then we can I think go into why why is he so popular with musicians, but yet not a household name. I had never heard of him. He's not a pop superstar just yet, or unless you think he is, and I'm just oblivious. Why do you think he is very very well regarded among the group of musicians who want to be just like him and want to have his skills, as you have sometimes said, but uh, general population hasn't really gotten into him or been exposed. Sure. I mean, I think musicians like him because we can hear how hard it is what he's doing. Like we can hear the artistry in it. We can look at it and think like, damn, like we can't do that. <laughs> um, <laughs> and we want to know what the chords are. You know, we want to know how he mixed it. It's a, it's a complex listen. It's really not easy to listen to. I'm just going to go full snob here. And <laughs> go ahead. Yeah. It doesn't always have a beat that's very steady. It doesn't have, it's not singable easily. Some, sometimes there are hooks, but then they'll you know, devolve into something else. Mm-hmm. So that's why. Something nice I can say is that all of his albums have made me want to sing, whether I can or not. <laughs> you made uh, you want to sing with him, or yeah, sing. Yeah, it's just you know, it's it, they're they're not. You can't sing along necessarily, but at the same time, you just want to you know burst into song. It's very joyful. Give give him credit for that. That's not easy to make people want to do. Something else that I appreciate about his work is that a lot of his songs are you know eight or nine minutes long, and not just complex, but also very long, entirely too long to be pop music, in many cases. Which I think he's gone away from a little bit on the on the third one. They're a little bit more like three and four minute pop songs. Mm-hmm. So again, so yeah, I think that uh, this could all change with the winning a possible Grammy. Uh, he has a, he's been nominated and has already won three, but I believe that his three Grammys that he's won so far are for things like Best Arrangement, which is a category that only really music snobs pay attention to. Do you think Grammys are still relevant? Does that matter? Do you follow the Grammys at all? No. Not at all? Not at all. Did you ever? Did you ever care? Do you think it matters to some people still or... Oh, I'm sure it matters irrelevant. to some people, but I, I mean, to be honest, would have had to Google what, which one was the Grammys and which one were the Emmys and which ones was the Oscars. Like, they just don't. <laughs> totally uh, unimportant to you. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, I can remember in the 80s and even into the early 90s when I was a, a, a young child and I thought that, wow, Grammys really determined this is the best music and that everybody has to know who they are and this, is, this means that everyone agrees that this is the best music, so this is something that we should all listen to and like. And I've definitely gone away from that over time. But uh, I think for a lot of people who out there in what we would call quote unquote mainstream, they will probably pay attention to best album or best song in a category that they like and so forth. But again, if you're jazz, I think that uh, that's the missing ingredient here. Jazz seems to me like a poison pill. Like if you're a jazz musician, you can pretty much give up any claims or hopes of uh, superstardom. Agree or disagree on jazz? I have no idea. Do you think jazz music is popular or that a jazz musician can be a, a superstar? Yeah, I guess I don't know. I don't know what your definition of a superstar is. I think like, can they be a household name amongst like all age groups? Probably not unless they genre bend in some way. Can they be as famous as Beyonce and Justin Bieber, Jay-Z and all that level of superstardom? Actually, any questions you ask me about fame, (laughs) I can't answer them because I don't 
I don't know what's famous. I, I don't know what people like. I don't know. I, ju- I just kind of exist in my own little music hole. And, you know, some of the people I like are, are well-known, are famous. Some of the people I like, nobody's ever heard of. I don't, okay. you know, un- unlike what I've heard you say, I, it doesn't matter to me how, how mainstream something is. You're going to um, like what you like. But I'm going to like what I like, but I also am not very aware of it. Okay, that's fair. Uh, can you describe for uh, for the listeners there what uh, what kind of music do you generally like to listen to, or who are your favorite artists and musicians? I tend to get like really into an artist and then you know eat my way through their entire discography, and then just be ignorant of everybody else in in music. Um, so okay. that's why when other bands come up as references, I'm just gonna generally be completely ignorant um, <laughs> no, that's, that's, so that's good to be the, focused yeah go ahead examples of the artists and bands that i you know listen to their whole discography uh fiona apple emerson lake and palmer um imogen heap i usually will at least try to listen to anything mike Patton does but i wouldn't say i've listened to his entire discography because a lot of it's unlistenable well, he's done so much um, too yeah yeah, well, a lot of it's unlistenable, but the few that aren't are great. So you gotta you gotta try. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's worth <laughs> it, it, it. is worth the effort. It will be repay you in kind. Right. So. All right. Well, that's that's good to good to keep in mind as we as we talk about it. it. Sounds like also that you were a very technical and close listener. You like you like things that are complex enough to either reward repeat listening or deserve close uh, scrutiny. Yeah, I don't. As you know, I only listen to music while I'm not doing anything else, unless it's driving. It's pretty much mm-hmm. it. All I'm doing when I listen to music is listening to music. You're fully focused and you tune out the rest of the world. Right. Except traffic, hopefully. So I <laughs> yeah, would hope so. That's why I think that's why I listen like that. If I were the background music listener, I probably would have a broader repertoire. Okay. I think you're also, in my experience, more likely to just uh, turn something off rather than tolerate it if you don't like it. <laughs> True. Yeah, true. And I'll, I'll say, too, that I will listen to music that's singable and while fully aware that I that it's not good. So there's a lot of there's a lot of bands that I just I like singing along to, whether it's nostalgia because I liked them in high school or whether it's just fun harmony. Um, I may have a different definition of catchy than like the I don't know, most people. But I think un, unlike you, I will listen to something and fully realize that this this sucks, but I love it. OK, we'll talk about good things and nostalgia and uh, guilty pleasures, I think, another time because it gets into dangerous territory. But uh, You don't want overall, me to say the name. Don't say the name. <laughs> uh, overall, would you say that you're more likely to listen to music or listen to podcasts in your free time? Podcasts. Much more likely, I would say. I would agree with you. I, I listen, not that anyone cares, you know, but I listen, I listen to music while I'm driving and podcast while I'm hiking. So there you go. Okay. There you go. Uh, definitely <laughs> a functional, <laughs> functional and situation specific listener. So that's yeah. good to know all, all these things. We have to know your entire background. I'll, I'll tell you why, because it, it might matter when I'm driving, I can sing along. And I generally like music better when I can sing along to it. You were saying that you can't sing along to Jacob Collier, but you can, and I do, in the car. Um, And when I'm hiking, I'm not going to be, you know, just singing on a hiking trail. Fair enough. You could yodel or something. No? No. You're not a yodeler. Not going to happen. 
<laughs> Too many people around. Okay. A lot of exposition here before we get into the actual album. What would you say is the relationship between complexity, quality, and your desire to listen to a piece of music? Are more complex songs generally better, in your opinion? For me, yes, generally. I think it is possible to get into the weeds. Um, and I even think that Jacob Collier does it sometimes. Generally, I, I want it to be complex because I want to not know everything that's going on. Mm-hmm. But, but I like some simple music. I like some music that I can play, which means it's very simple. I want to run some things by you. Would you say that it is more likely that you will like a piece of music if you are in awe of the musician? Yes. Okay. Do you think it is necessary for you to love a song or a musician to, to be super impressed and just say, wow, how did they do that? Yes, um, but not necessarily because they're virtuoso. I would say that like, um, what's an example? Uh, Radiohead, Radiohead, let's go with Radiohead. I, I don't listen to them and go, how do they do that? I think it's pretty clear how they do that, but it's still, it's not impressive in a virtuosic way but it is impressive in a how did they think of that way Hmm. or how how did they create that atmosphere kind of Hmm. way okay Um, so so yeah you don't need to be like a technically excellent musician for me to love a song right but i i think that i can't be like well i could have done that this afternoon (laughs) if it's simple you're more likely to dislike a song because it's too simple than if it's you know in the weeds and too highfalutin complex more likely to dislike the the former the simple one right i'm I'm not equating complexity with the weirdness here because there's definitely a lot of weird experimental music out there that i do not prefer to listen to (laughs) good fair enough I think there has to be some musicality to it. I think several of your friends have pushed that on you and found less than receptive response. I've also heard of an an appreciation, I think it was the band Muse, where someone described to me as they like Muse, the band, the rock band Muse. I don't know if you're familiar. They like them because they do stuff that nobody else can. So that, that fits into virtuosity, too. I think that Jacob Collier does a lot of things that very few if any other people could do it i mean he hangs with uh, herbie hancock and quincy jones (laughs) he's talking about reverse harmony and all kinds of technical things that i couldn't possibly wrap my head around that's not why you like jacob gallier or is it no not really i guess i don't really think about why i like him it just speaks to you yeah i mean like i said earlier harmony is the easiest to roll me in and that's probably his most recognizable quality in his music Choose your metaphor. You have a choice between two metaphors. I've prepared this, and it's contrived. You have the metaphor of the coloring book or the peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Visual art or food. And I, I know you're something of a foodie, so choose your metaphor to go into. <laughs> it's a metaphor for what? Metaphor for Jacob Collier's music. <laughs> and it has to be visual art or a peanut butter sandwich? No, it has to be a coloring book or a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Um, pass. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I've prepared. <laughs> you said I could ask the question, so I'm going to go into it. And so I, I apologize if this gets too far, too far into the uh, this is crazy talk nonsense. But uh, I'm going to go with the coloring book because I prepared for it. So listen carefully and see. Tell me when you disagree. Music of any kind or any art form has elements and principles. Yes. Sure. 
there are some shared elements and principles, rhythm, repetition, uh, etc., so on, design. For visual art, maybe we start with a coloring book for a child, right? We all know what a coloring book is. And for a child, we praise the kid who colors within the lines of the coloring book, yes? Uh. This will all make sense in a minute. <laughs> Would you disagree? I mean, yeah, but... <laughs> Initially, at least. Initially, at least. Kid... I was not personally praised for coloring within the lines, but sure, I get your point. <laughs> okay. There are, the general expectation is that a good kid or a kid that is good at coloring will color within the lines, and coloring outside the lines is not good, is bad. <laughs> Yeah, I, I would say, like, at least stay, keep it in the book and don't color on the walls. But yeah, okay. <laughs> keep it in the book and not on the walls. That's a good, good rule to follow. As we get older, maybe our coloring becomes more complex. And it's unlikely that a kid is going to reject the lines. The kid is going to see the lines that exist. And maybe some with poor eyesight may not be able to see the lines. So in the end, if somebody colors in a coloring book, is it art or not? What do you think? Do we want to hang it on the wall or frame it? Yeah, I mean, I, sorry to be a buzzkill, but I don't care. Like, I don't, I don't care what's art or not. I really don't. If, okay. if someone thinks it's pleasant to look at and they want to hang it on their wall, great. Okay. I don't have an opinion. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to transition here into whether we want to hang it on the wall, frame it, or hang it on the fridge with a magnet. Is it art or not? I, I, I see it more as a, as a work of art or not worth preserving. I see Jacob Collier as someone who not only colors perfectly, within the lines, blending colors in ways that no one ever has. But you could also take a magnifying glass to his coloring book and discover lines you didn't know were there. They're intricate, fine lines intersecting, lines upon lines upon lines. And the average listener only sees the canvas, not the lines. So in my view, uh, he's very adept in his omnicompetence and near virtuosity and so many and arrangements and so on and harmonies that are, have never been made before. And I think that uh, that limits what I can appreciate about uh, some of his songs. And, yeah, I mean, I think that splitting splitting hairs or splitting lines or, you know, however you want to look at it, because if you're, if you're arguing that, I remember what you said, reverse harmony and microtones and... Yes, yes and things like that are still within the lines, then what would be without, what would be outside of them? Well, that, thank you for asking. In fact, I would say that you are <laughs> the source of many of my uh, examples of people who cannot tolerate people who sing out of key, who can't sing, quote unquote. And I will list a few examples. You say that David Byrne of the Talking Heads cannot sing. And Spin Magazine... <laughs> He collaborated with St. Vincent, and you like the St. Vincent parts, but you don't like the David Byrne parts because David Byrne can't sing, quote-unquote. Okay. Spin Magazine says that David Bowie can't sing. My cousin, who is also trained as, as a trained singer and musician, says that Ben Folds can't sing. You have opinions on Ben Folds? No. No opinion. Okay. But anyway, these would be I examples. I don't, I don't even know who. Well, I guess I know who he is, but that's it. Um, I'll say that I, I have a friend who introduced me to a band called Para Ubu. Do you know who that? Of course, they're from Cleveland, and uh, I love them. Okay, great. Well, he also told me that the lead singer describes himself as tone deaf, and <laughs> and then he wanted me to listen to them, which I definitely didn't want to do after he said that. But I found that he wasn't. He was not tone deaf. Tone I think deaf. I have heard a tone deaf person sing. I'll leave it at that. I also understand that REM records the vocal tracks 
uh, without without any accompaniment because he's not very adept with tone and so forth. So anyway, so these are all they examples. The instruments yeah, match him instead of the other way around. Something like that. I actually don't know the process or even if it's true. It could be apocryphal to uh, to bust out the big words. Yeah. But, oh, and uh, by the way, me leaving at that was not implying that you're tone deaf. You're not. You're okay, very, you. you're very toneful. But anyway, the the people who quote unquote can't sing or who sing out of key, they're the ones who color outside the lines and might be breaking the rules basically and i would say that many musicians more mature would say either that they can't see any lines or they would say that they reject the lines whether we should judge the songs and their music as a as a whole a gestalt rather than adherence to any um, any principles or rules and I think that to avoid being totally abstract or becoming a Jackson Pollock or something or becoming noise or static on a TV screen, some conventions do need to be followed. But you can pick and choose which ones you want to and which ones you want to break or stretch and so on. Otherwise, I see that music becomes kind of a pageantry, a contest to see who can best color within the lines of a coloring book, who can follow the rules best. Right. Thoughts? Well, if singing out of key is... Drawing outside the lines, then almost everybody does it. Okay. But Collier almost never does, does he? No, and if he does, it's it's on purpose, I feel. You know, he's doing some kind of weird microtonal thing. But no, I, I wouldn't say that some people who sing, you know, they'll bend a pitch deliberately. They'll be very casual about what their voice is doing deliberately, and they're not in tune, but it's so deliberate that, and not deliberate in the same way that Collier is, but deliberate in that, you know, it's more of a, a talking sound than a singing sound. Mm. You know, I think if you have a style and your part of your style is to not always be in tune, that mm. it's accepted, even by me sometimes. I think it's sometimes. more... I think it's sometimes. Sometimes. <laughs> with me, it's more... Uh, I think it's less of a um, value judgment than just my ears hurt. All right. So if it's intentional, it sounds like, then it's okay and it, you might still like it. But if, if it's somebody who should be in key and isn't deliberately going out of it, then you're more likely to say, this person can't sing and I don't want to hear it. Yeah, nothing sounds worse than somebody who really thinks they're in key and isn't. <laughs> and that's probably what many musicians who are lack the training or talent or skill to do is they think they're singing right and they're not, you think? I don't know, lacking something ears or well, I mean, I do it a lot myself, like when I'm recording you know, my own music. It's a lot of takes because I listen to it back and I'm like, damn, that person, me, is really thinks she's in tune on that take and she is not. And I do it over. I also seem to seem to recall that's a, the, often the first critique that your mom gives to a certain piece of music. For example, hyperpotamus, I think, is what she said that uh, either you or she said that he's not always in key. Yeah, she did. She couldn't even finish the first song on that album. <laughs> and we'll talk about that. It's interesting in to me because I, I think he is at least in tune enough that my ears like it. I don't think he's perfect all the time, but it you know it sounds good. But she she was like you know turn that off. <laughs> okay. Do you have more to say about following rules or breaking them? So I want to go very briefly into a food comparison and take your word on complexity generally being more enjoyable to you rather than simple songs. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, and I'll edit this out if I'm totally wrong, but did, did not the food critic Jonathan Gold say something like uh, the best food is more often the result of a combination or interplay between a few ingredients rather than overdoing it and sometimes more is just more and I give the example of him criticizing a San Francisco burrito as having too much in the burrito and becoming the model for Chipotle where everything goes in and nothing is left out 
Am I wrong about the, the source of that idea? And do you not disagree? I have no idea whether you're wrong about it. <laughs> okay. Um, I, maybe I, maybe I, maybe, maybe I've heard you saying it then that you don't need a ton of ingredients. Definitely wasn't me. I like to throw everything in my food. Really? Okay. So I, I might have to edit that out, but I'll have to look into it more. But I, I know somebody said it and it was a food critic. And it might, I hope it wasn't just some, you know, TV food channel person who said that three or four ingredients together is best. You're more of a throw it all in a blender. As long as you know what you're doing, it's good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, mind, mindfully throw it all in a blender. I just like a lot of a lot of herbs. But Collier's work is both complex and very, very subtle. And that uh, the average listener, and I consider myself an average listener in terms of close listening or listening for technical things like which chords are involved. I think most people would it would just go over their heads, and they would the subtleties would be lost, and it's pearls before swine kind of a situation. But you are listening for exactly which chords and how did you do that? And uh, songs are treated as harmony puzzles or as exercises in reaching certain sounds. And that's that's a good thing for you? Yeah, not successfully. I mean, I don't know what he's doing 99% of the time, but I, I like not knowing. It's, you know, it's a good feeling. So a song that doesn't experiment with harmony is less interesting to you than one that does? All else being equal. Good to know. Good to know. All right. I think we're just about ready to actually talk about the album. (laughs) Okay. What are your thoughts on the album in general? You can start. It's your pick. My thoughts on the album. Of the three, it was the one I initially liked the most and probably still remains that way, um, which is somewhat unusual. I usually have songs or albums that strike me as very listenable at first, and then they quickly get sour but this album stayed how many times have you listened to this album would you estimate uh i don't know 15 15 okay that's that's sizable yeah i think i've probably listened to almost 10 times in preparation and all within you know the past month (laughs) you must you must not hate it then no i don't hate it absolutely not it's uh it's interesting i will say that the songs that i liked the most on first listen are no longer the songs i like the most now interesting so some things grow on you can you give an example of one that grew on you or one that Uh, jumped out immediately yeah nebaluyo it's one of my favorites now. It runs through so many genres that I actually thought that was in the weeds a little bit the first few times I hmm. I listened to it. When the saxophone That's... comes in, it's crazy. Like, why is <laughs> there a saxophone, like a you know crunchy saxophone in the middle of this very world music-y song? And at first I was like, yeah, that's too almost just insensitive to do that. Let me press you on uh, possible cultural appropriation of African music. You have no problem with the skinny white dude? singing African songs? Yeah, I have thoughts about that, actually, because I... Um, so you know Paul Simon's Graceland, I hope. Actually, not really. <laughs> so, too popular. <laughs> okay, well, that's... <laughs> that is not obscure. No. So not obscure that I even know about it. Mm-hmm. But only because my parents listened to it growing up. Anyway, it's very like Volume 2 in, in that there's a lot of of African music and I wouldn't even say influences, but it's straight up just African music with Paul Simon on top of it. Mm-hmm. And I always have had a problem or no problem, but I've always had like an icky feeling about mm-hmm. that, but it's under his discography and it's just his name on the cover. And yes, everybody is credited, but people, you know, when they're talking about, Oh, Graceland's this great album. It's the you know, superlatives. Da, da, da. Um, when more than half of it is definitely written by the African musicians who recorded it. Mm-hmm. That's my actually my biggest criticism about volume two. Mm-hmm. It's like 
can should we be attributing all this to to Jacob Collier? I, I don't I don't feel great about it. Mm-hmm. For me, that uh, that line, whether you're culturally appropriating and not giving credit where it's due, is uh, one of my favorite albums by Juno Reactor, and his live concert and just involves an entire ensemble of traditional African music, and he's in a very very electronic, very very uh, white dude (laughs) and uh, his stage show is basically them doing a almost a circus act but also obviously being african musicians and i think this is uh yeah he does obviously give them credit but when are you taking (laughs) taking something as your own and getting all the credit for it when it's really an entire civilization that is not your own that is something that should be uh, kept in mind certainly yeah i saw it more recently with hanya west in the sunday service choir Hmm. i guess i'll out myself as being a Kanye West hater. Um, not like, I don't know him as a person, but just a Kanye West music hater. I, I really have tried because there's a lot of people I respect and whose musical tastes I respect who like him, but I just can't. I think it has a lot to do with autotune. Oh. <laughs> but <laughs> the album that he features, the Sunday Service Choir, is good because of the Sunday Service Choir. And I know this because I went and listened to the Sunday Service Choir's album, like the one separate from him. Mm-hmm. But even even their album, he's given this really high billing, you know, to go off on a tangent about my dad again. It was actually on the same trip that I tried to get him into Jacob Collier. And I set out and he loves gospel, like loves gospel. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I was like, I have there's this great gospel group that I want to introduce you. And I made the mistake of mentioning that they were associated with Kanye West. And like the the whole (laughs) next 20 minutes was him just nope, 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 not listening to it. I won't even do it. So I had to I had to just shut him up by turning it on. And it did shut him up because they're so good. He just shut up and listened to it. But I guess, yeah, I don't know what my point is. My point is that, yeah, associating yourself with your the backbone of your album that's a little bit dishonest to me yeah i think that's that's very fair and appropriate to to just a point to make and i think i can also take your point that sometimes just talking about or describing music is pointless and it's best just to put it on and quit yapping so we're doing the opposite here (laughs) yeah if that's what you want to put out of the world during this podcast No, you should absolutely listen to people talking about music endlessly. It's it's highly worthwhile. <laughs> so in terms of uh, the fame that we mentioned Kanye West and how, how famous or obscure is this? I mean, f- four million views on it for every YouTube video. And I think that's, that's well above my usual standard. And I kind of making a concession to you because I really wanted to get your opinions on, on my podcast and have you co-host. But I think for some people, this will feel like, oh, finally, you're talking about something I've heard of in, in this case. And but others, I think if you're a hardcore obscurity stickler, you might say, well, why have I lowered my standards? So I just want to say that you never know what someone is not going to have heard of, no matter how famous. And there are definitely yeah. holes in anybody's listening experience, as you've described. And that being said, almost everybody I talk to has not heard of Jacob Collier. Well, thank you for that vote of confidence. And including I think you, including yes, you. That's right. I think there was a Guardian article that I'll, I'll link to in the in the show notes also that says uh, he's maybe about to break it big with this Grammy nomination. So we'll see. Are there other tracks that uh, stood out to you initially that you want to mention that you like less? You also said. Yeah. So here comes the sun. Obviously, Beatles cover. I loved at first. I mean, I actually also love the original. And I still think I still think it's really, really impressive. But 
and th- this was a, a criticism that somebody else said to me when I played it for him, and now I hear it. It's that is a song. I think that it may be better simple. Hmm. Why? It's, it's not that simple of a song initially, but he didn't have to like you know put a weird like I don't know how to describe what he puts in the middle of it. But it it's sounds like, like a bridge. It's an African bridge, I'd call it. Yeah. Go ahead. <sighs> I don't even know what was Africa. It just sounds like him and his um, and Dodie just wandered off <laughs> in the grass and just started rolling. Like, <laughs> yeah. Into the savannah. I, really, I yes. guess all I really like is the end. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No, I thought it was definitely an interesting take. I want to talk about his Beatles cover versus Hyperpotamus's cover of Strawberry Fields uh, later. Come back to that in, in comparison of Beatles covers, but specifically cover songs. Jacob Collier has uh, certainly got his start, as many young musicians do, as covering standards. And I know this is something that you like to do yourself, is cover your own version of uh, songs that you like. Uh, what do you think of his work and what are, what are your standards for a good cover? There are a few covers of his that I didn't know were covers, which I'm embarrassed to admit that I didn't know that In My Room was a Beach Boys cover because I really do like the Beach Boys. I, I didn't know that either. So Yeah, um, we well, I just thought it was a great song and it is on both. I feel like Moon River was a look what I can do with how many voices I have. I think it's great. Like It's great to listen to. It's really interesting and fun to listen to but i'm not sure if it's meant to move anybody which is i may be the point of moon river in the first place thank you thank you thank you for that point because i was afraid i was going to be attacking a sacred cow in my criticism of it that is the five thousand takes song so i was going to ask then about gravitas and movement and moving the listener in the uh, in the audience and i think that uh, sometimes for some certain songs that are so sacred that you need to have more life experience than a 20 year old guy when you're singing singing the standards in the classics like for example i'm sure that jacob collier could do a technically flawless brilliant rendition of old musical numbers like old man river or sinatra's my way or something like that but should he he's a young man and i i hate to say it but i think some some of these songs you have no right as a young man to to sing <laughs> and I, mean, I River... agree about him not being able to do it because he's young i think that there are plenty of young men who could do it okay i just i'm not sure that that's his focus you know he can like i was saying earlier he already knows how to play every instrument on earth mm-hmm. he already has a ridiculous range he can he's an advanced logic user with the video editing wizardry Mm-hmm. Maybe there isn't any room for gravitas, as you put it. <laughs> okay. There isn't any room, as in it's just too much for one person to, to be able to do or to pull off? I'm just not sure it's his, his thing right now. Okay. it's I, I would say definitely not his focus. Maybe he's trying to uh, – in his interviews, I, I was going to accuse him of uh, just – singing to hit certain notes or make achieve certain harmonies rather than singing with feeling but i in his in his interviews he's definitely you know saying about all the emotion and meaning he's trying to put into his songs so i guess yeah. i shouldn't shouldn't assume that there isn't any there maybe it just yeah. doesn't connect with me or it's too too general and general audience and broadly appealing i actually agree with you and i it's funny that you bring that up because i was thinking about that this morning you know and it's <laughs> funny because i i'm the one who wanted to talk about him and i love him obviously but i'm critiquing him more than you are in this podcast <laughs> my least favorite thing about him is his voice huh. it's despite how in tune he is and how you know how he hits it and how all of his five thousand harmonies i Mm -hmm. think well let me rephrase it it's not i I think he uses his voice like another instrument Mm -hmm. 
rather than as a voice. So, you know, he's using it to create soundscapes more than he's using it to convey emotion through words. And and for me, Jesse Volume 2 is the first album of his three that he had put out so far that I think he could pull off a lyrics-driven ballad. Hmm. Before that, I, I don't think he could. Interesting. Something meaningful... He he actually doesn't even want to make it. A lot of people say, make the music that you want to make for yourself in case nobody ever appreciates it. At least you will. But I think that a lot of his lyrics are so general about love or broadly uh, not going to offend anybody and not going to maybe uh, speak to anyone on a personal level, but just generally feeling on the human condition sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And I think, yeah, if you were to make a... A lyrical ballad like you say that is written to a certain person that he loves or something that would be uh interesting to hear him do and maybe he has done that i just haven't appreciated the lyrics but uh, yeah i think that would be interesting to see whether you're right that he could do it and i know that you have in the past described your distaste for affectation in vocals so that was actually going to come after you on that and attack you viciously <laughs> because i think that his vocals are extremely affected and he, he makes a point of it whether your breath is full or your mouth is wide open or not and uh, it, it, he sounds uh, just really fake <laughs> in a lot of cases but i understand that there's he's, he's, he's purposeful he's doing it so that he can achieve a certain sound he makes a big point about being distant or close to the microphone or which part of the room you're recording in and all these things and yeah, i wonder yeah, yeah i've heard his interviews and i don't remember yeah. saying that i don't like affected voices mostly because i don't even know how you're using the word i mean examples of lcn i don't remember if you know her her voice kind of uh or do you like you say that i like breathy women <laughs> oh yeah women who are trying to force kind of a babyish sound i think that's what i was saying okay okay so somebody on youtube like uh, i was on one of um jacob collier's youtube videos i remember watch and it was just you know the comments are full of people just loving on him and saying how much of a genius he is and there's this one person who's like i'm sorry guys but he just sounds like he's yawning <laughs> His voice just sounds like he's yawning, and I, I think that's true. He does sound like he's yawning in, in terms of timbre. There's a timbre of his voice sounds like he's yawning, but obviously, you know, he yawns in 8,000 different tones, so I think you can give him a pass. And, like, just to be clear, I'm not really dissing him for it. If vocal specialization, not specialization. Yeah, I mean, he can go for what he wants to go for, and he's gone for enough. Like, he's proved his skill in so many things that I don't think we can sit here and pick at him for the the one thing that isn't perfect. Well, it's done in the spirit of experimentation. I can say, I want to know what it would sound like if I did X, Y, and Z altogether, or mm -hmm. take out Y and see if you left it out. There's a, and he even makes a big deal about leaving out the expectations for those who are listening carefully, his, uh, his departure and arrival talking mm -hmm. about in terms of chord progressions and uh, note progressions and melodies and so on. It's kind of like the stereotypical pretentious jazz person saying you have to listen to the notes that they're not playing mm. and uh, he, he makes a big deal about that in his own in his own thing and I think it's much more difficult to appreciate this kind of vocal virtuosity and experimentation in what is basically pop music with somewhat uh, insipid lyrics I would say sometimes as opposed to opera or some kind of exper explicitly experimental songs where this is the point of I'm going to do a, a harmony exercise doing XYZ but leave out Y and see how it feels I mean you've obviously listened to more of his interviews than I have which isn't hard to do because I think I've heard one um, 
So you talking about him talking about being experimental with his vocals really surprises me because I hear the same tone most of the time. Hmm. Okay. I think that uh, what he's trying to do specifically is make very, very subtle variations on his chords. He's like, take one out and he's talking about how many cents above or below and microtonality and all that technical stuff that I don't fully understand. And so what I think for the average listener, it's like when I talked about mixing colors in a coloring book. As we all know, if we mix all the paint together, it just comes out of like kind of a, a brown. And it's for a lot of listeners, it's which which shade of brown <laughs> is the tone. Well, maybe his micro experimentations are lost on me. Goodness, I thought that's why you liked him. So I, I came in with this, this with uh, false assumptions. It's the overall. You're you're more of an overall. Does it sound good to me, listener? Than a wow. Can you can you believe? In one of the interviews, he mentions, I, I don't remember if it was Quincy Jones or Herbie Hancock, playing an improvised song that still sounded a little contrived to me, and which seems a total contradiction in terms. How can you be contrived and improvised at the same time? I think it was the song You and I, and I, either Herbie Hancock or Quincy Jones hit a certain part on, on that, and he says this was so touching because they said to him, oh, stop it right there. What was that chord? How did you make that chord? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> So that really was important to him, and I think it would totally be lost on me, but I assume that that's what you were listening for. Subtle variations on harmonies. No, no. I think that my experience as someone who's passed four semesters of uh, college music theory class is not anywhere near on the level I would need to be to hear what they were hearing in that that video. I assume I haven't seen the video. Okay, that's the June Lee video. I think it was the either the second or the third one. I mean, I've watched hours of interviews with this guy, and he's, he knows what he's talking about. He has read entire books on harmony, and there are books on harmony, many of them uh, that surprised me that you know, it's not just a... Obviously, there's more than a three-tone, <laughs> uh, a three-note chord. I knew that, but... Uh, there, there is, yeah. <laughs> so for the average listener, they're not going to listen to it in the way that he intends. And so my question for you then is... Can the general population, including ourselves, be educated to listen the way he wants or the way he intends, and should they be educated to do so? The way he intends? No, I don't think that anywhere, no. The general populace cannot listen, cannot hear everything he puts in. Okay. But that doesn't mean that they can't like him. Okay. I mean, I'm including myself in the general populace. I can't hear a tenth of what he puts in, I'm sure. But it doesn't... It doesn't prevent me from liking him. I'm not I'm not sure. But if I had to make a very uneducated guess, I, I would think that the reason he won the Grammy for the third one is that it's the most rhythmically straightforward. I do think that people tend to want to beat. Yeah. He divides music into different sections and talks about something. I think it was swing percentage. Have you heard of this? <laughs> not really. That was all about the differences in the rhythm, whether there is more or less swing to it. And uh, that is in the Build interview. Okay. It's uh, all about rhythm. But the larger question, though, is should there be more music education in public schools? I I think we would all agree yes, yeah? Yeah, of course. And do you think that his his songs would be a good learning tool for showing the complexity of music more than just a simple melody? Or do you think uh, classical music is where everyone should stay in elementary school and so forth. No, I think that classical music isn't where everybody should stay. Okay. So if, if there were a, a semester of the songs of Jacob Collier taught at your local university or community college, everyone should enroll and you would enroll. 
Uh, no, of course, everyone shouldn't enroll. I don't make everybody <laughs> take a Jacob Collier class, but sure, if it's available, I would enroll. Yeah. Okay. Um, music students probably would find it enlightening, but no, I'm not, I'm not for forced enrollment in the music of Jacob Collier community college class. <laughs> Come on, that's that's what socialism's all about, right? Forcing people to do stuff and learn about art and music. It's, uh, that's only yeah. done by force. <laughs> if I if I enforce that, then somebody would force enroll me in a visual art class. <laughs> <laughs> and you don't like it. All right, there should be some choice involved. But I, I do think we should talk about a little bit about privilege too, and that not everybody gets to grow up in a bedroom as a music studio full of instruments, and not everybody gets to, in your case, work in a, a musical instrument store and get to try all of the instruments. So, I mean, well, is that, I did that you because say, I went to a music camp where I knew I wanted to do that? Mm-hmm. Well, I think. Collier is clearly a guy who who loved every elementary school music class, and not everybody does. And so that's, I think, what led him to put so much study into it. And that's why I really take issue with saying he's just so very talented. I, it, from the interviews, it really comes out that he dedicated his life to studying academically all yeah. of these things. Well, yeah, no, saying you're saying he's talented isn't discounting that. I think that a lot of people think it's mostly talent in it. For To me, it really sounded like that's why I do appreciate him, is that he really has done a lot of work, and every waking hour is spent either reading or making music. That's that's what I appreciate, that it's, there's effort involved, a lot of effort, beyond just practice makes perfect, but actually study. And making it more formal and academic, I think, is a good thing, especially in pop music, which is so throwaway and obnoxious and simple in many cases or even cheating with autotune as you said so hearing somebody who is taking pop music very seriously and pushing its boundaries is something that i appreciate in concept if not necessarily in every every example of it Mm. on this album if we can go back to moon river i'm going to trash it I think Moon River is is way overdone. I like the longer songs I mentioned before, but this is eight minutes of a, of a song that I don't like in the first place. I actually don't like all the musical schmaltz. So taking yeah, a song... Yeah, I wish you would come out about that. So can you tell... <laughs> <laughs> Tell your listeners that you don't like any musicals. I, I, I have a list of like 10 musicals that I do like and the rest I could, you know, throw in the trash. I don't care. So and he I doesn't mean like that, Randy Rainbow, guys. He doesn't like Randy <laughs> I, I appreciate his uh, his effort and his, his artistry and I don't want to listen to it. <laughs> and uh, his wordplay. Great. His politics. I agree with his politics. Thank you. All right. Having said that. Moon River, a song I didn't like in the first place, and now you've made it really long. It sounded to me overdone with the 5,000 takes. It sounded to me like a cage of angry coral monkeys that occasionally get very agitated. It starts out really soft, and I would never choose to listen to this song in the original or the cover. I do actually have a copy of it made with a, a theremin, and it's short and it's simple, and I would say that's a much better cover than his, and it's just overwrought. Again, sometimes more is just more, in the words of my high school art teacher. I just said those were in the words of Jonathan Gold. Nah, that's specific to uh, simple ingredients, not not overdoing the number of ingredients. More is just more, is, is my high school art teacher. I see. Mr. Carberg, if you're out there. Carberg Orchards. Definitely the low light, and I would skip that song. I would also probably skip Here Comes the Sun for the same reasons you mentioned. In terms of the musical education, I think that forcing everybody to take more music classes in in public schools is, I think, a a good thing up to a certain point. But I feel like I'm doing the same thing and advocating that not only should we 
learn more music theory, but everyone should just listen to more and different types of music. Um, okay. You agree? No, I don't. I, th- I think people like what they like, and it's okay. <laughs> there should not be any obligation to broaden one's horizons. Not obligation. I think there should be the option. Okay. But if someone well, doesn't, you know, want to take your weird, obscure class, then that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so in both cases, should people be forced to take music theory or should they be forced to listen to music other than what they like? You would say no in both cases. No, they should be presented with the option. All right. Okay, you win the snob contest. <laughs> <laughs> it was a competition, so woo-hoo, I win. <laughs> I have a few more things to say. I think that Do You Feel Love is his Michael Jackson moment, despite <laughs> having Steve Vai. It's a very. Um, uh, Do You Feel Love was one of the, also one of the ones that I loved at first, and now I'm like, no, I still like it. So maybe there's a pattern here where the ones that uh, are especially catchy, I would say that's a catchy tune. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, it's kind of, it jumps out at you. And I mean, Steve Vai, well, <laughs> great Actually, guitarist. I don't know who that is, so. Oops. He's considered a virtuoso on the likes of uh, Yingwei Malmsteen, and that uh, there's a line between solo work where you're showing off and then noodling and then masturbation. Mm-hmm. And there's not very clear lines between sometimes. I think he has, a, there's the joke about him is that, oh, wow, Steve Vai, man, he's playing the guitar between his legs. Awesome. Like, uh, a trick skateboardist, maybe? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. But anyway, I think uh, it, as, as, as collaborators go, I think his contribution to that is beyond what I believe Jacob could have done on the guitar on his own. So I guess it adds to it. The album as a whole, if we want to talk about it, I think it switches and blends genres like British Americana folk, bluegrass, Celtic, electronic, and vocal lounge jazz. You can divide the album into sections where it's pretty mellow and Celtic and bluegrassy, folksy in the first part, and then jazzy in the middle part, and then African at the end. I don't really think about genre, I think. Why not? Because I don't care. Like, I just like what I like. I don't know. I don't even know what it's called. (laughs) I don't need to know what won a Grammy or what genre something is. So there are certain things that you like to be complex, like the song overall or harmonies in general. And there are things that you just put entirely to the side and don't care about. And I Yeah, well, what is there to say? Like, okay, this is, uh, what did you say, lounge vocal jazz? What did you say? Yes, vocal lounge jazz. Okay, well, like, great. So once I know what that is, which I don't, but like, once I do, <laughs> then what else What else is there to say? Well, like, uh, to what extent? That's not complex. That's, that's just you, So I think, I think the genres are very useful. Would you disagree entirely that, you know, we should just do away with them? And some people say that there's good music and bad music. Is that I don't think we should do anything. I think that's where our, um, we're disagreeing here. Like they're not. It's not important to me, but I don't want to make it illegal. <laughs> like you want to mandate that everybody listen to the music you like, and uh, they must. Yeah, no, you can you can love genres. I, I don't care. It doesn't add value to my music listening experience. You know, categorization is helpful. Like mm-hmm. I don't generally like fantasy fiction. So if something is labeled as fantasy fiction, I'm probably not going to go out of my way to get it from the library. So sure, it's useful. But if I already like an album, then I no longer care because I just like it. Okay. I think where, again, we differ, I have a chip on my shoulder and I'm an activist and I believe in forcing people into doing things that are for their own good and even if they would resist and don't agree at the time it's the pedantic teacher in me Mm -hmm. and um, 
So I do also think that genre is misused a lot in, in terms of dismissing. I know how many people use it is they say, I don't like X, Y, or Z genre. I don't like country or I don't like hip hop. That's most often what people say. Mm-hmm. That's the divide in, the, in our American society today is that there are the country music listeners and the hip hop music listeners and near the tween shall meet, except when somebody dares to try to blend the two. And I think that's misuse of it. But I also do think that we need not only categories, but we need shortcuts because there's so much out there to listen to. And if you're going to suggest something to a friend and you know that they don't like country, then I'm probably not going to introduce them to country unless I want to really change their mind. And I'm more likely to succeed by giving them something that I expect they'll like. It's useful before you've listened to something. It's not useful afterwards, so to me. All right. Fair enough. All right. Well, I, I do consider it also very important, not not just uh, in general, but to myself, to, yeah. to, to have to have some expectations and also to have some aesthetics for how to evaluate them, whether it's a good example or a bad example or derivative or original, or if it's pushing the boundaries or something. So all of these things. Your, I respect your right to value genre. <laughs> Okay, thank you for your respect. <laughs> I will try to try to respect your opinions, but I, I will more likely just you know trash them and diss them and call you stupid. So <laughs> yeah, I mean you're, you're welcome to ask me a bunch of genre questions, but you're going to get a non-answer. <laughs> okay, noted for future reference. A comparison that we can make with both Collier and the band that you suggested to me that I didn't like, except their earlier glam rock work, was Sparks and the use of vocal loops. How vocal loops are used in a song, I think uh, both Collier and Sparks in, in their turn-of-the-century, 21st-century works, they seem to use uh, repeating vocals as kind of like a rhythm guitar function. I don't know if I don't like it, because I, I usually do like repetition, but for some reason not vocals, and maybe that's because there's schizophrenia in my family, but uh, your thoughts on vocal loops? When is it okay? Not okay? Oh, it's always okay. It's fine. Um, I... <laughs> I like so Sparks. I like it from a completely different vantage point. As I like Jacob Collier, I they just use textures very interestingly. So what do you mean by textures? I, I, find, I find their sound soothing, despite the fact that it you know it repeats the whole time and there's not necessarily anything new happening the whole track. Hmm. I tend to listen to that when I work out. Actually, it's okay. my version of I guess like amp you up music. Why why do um, you call it soothing then? Why do you want to work out to soothing music? Soothing's the wrong word then. I guess it gets you into a pattern of where you just robotically do the thing. Okay. I mean, I can totally see it if it gets you to do do your reps better, you know, lift, weight, lifting weights or something or something like well, that. But yeah, I, push-ups, push-ups, pull-ups. So also, I like vocal loops because I will noodle on top of them. I uh, generally don't just listen to it without singing on top of it. So it is like rhythm guitar. It's a foundation for your solo. <laughs> Yeah, like I experiment over it. I'm not sure that I would listen to it otherwise. Okay. Well, I, I'm, I, as I mentioned, I'm fine with, you know, obviously electronic music is mainly loop-based in, in many cases. And uh, I think that vocal loops, however, just really get grating on me. So that that's another problem I have. It's personal. Yeah. Yeah, I, could, I could see that. I, I'll say that as I've gotten older, I've tolerated them better. Any loops, not just not just vocals. I, I can appreciate the subtle variation from phrase to phrase, even with a lot of repetition. It's like a slow, slow alteration between two atmospheres. Hmm. Subtly shifting and so on. Just to hear you talk about atmospheres in a positive way is surprising to me. But uh, I think that's a bridge that a lot of especially seniors never managed to cross. 
in terms of repetition in electronic music, or is it uh, that's most often the reason why electronic music gets dismissed by people for a certain age? Is they just say it's it's too repetitive? I think your your father has mentioned that as much specifically. Some other general thoughts: To what extent do we like music that we want to make ourselves? Do you want to be Jacob Collier in your dreams? Of course. Does that At least apply? I, I would to... like to have his his technical skill and knowledge. Okay. Does that apply to all of the music that you like? That liking something means that you want to be able to make it yourself or imitate it or emulate it? Yeah, usually. Interesting. Do you think that's more true often with musicians than with general listeners? I don't consider myself a musician, for example, and I, there's lots of music I like that I would never ever want to make. Yeah, I have no idea. I don't know what other people, why other people like music. Well, no more people then. <laughs> What's wrong with you? <laughs> I know uh, them. I don't ask them. I don't invite them on my podcast and ask intrusive questions about why you, they like things. Are you saying this is an unusual activity that we're engaged in here? <laughs> They're somewhat, somewhat unnatural. Most people, I would argue, like things because it makes them feel good and it sounds nice and makes them want to move. And I, I'm in a workout group and we have a shared Spotify list that I am not allowed to add to because ah. everybody else's workout music is, you know, actual amp you up music and not like creepy vocal loops. <laughs> Interesting. So That's I, cool. yeah, I, I assume that they like it because it makes them want to sweat. But I don't ask them. I'm not like, Best hey. Best workout I... tracks ever. Yeah. Jacob Collier. Yeah, why would yeah, I ask let's pump, it. pump it up to Collier. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's not that I don't understand Pump You Up music. I, I get it. I just kind of get bored by it. So in terms of albums in general, you're more of a single track listener than an album listener, I, I assume? No. No, I'm an album listener. I, I don't yeah. know. I, it's not really a dichotomy. I don't know. Okay. I mean, it's, and again, I, I'm trying to force categorizations on you. So would you say that you can listen to one of his albums most of the time all the way through without skipping? Or is it more of a kind of a love-hate, skip some, and then still love the album, but skip half the tracks? I don't or, skip do any on volume two. Not on volume two, but on others, you do skip some. I'm looking at the track list now. On volume one, I don't skip any. No, I don't think I skip any for him. Not at all. Interesting. So most people I talk to, certainly my other co-hosts, have a very discerning tastes. I think also like you, they they're, if they don't like something, they'll just turn it off or skip it. Oh, there um, are definitely albums where I'll skip songs, just not his. Okay. It's the polar opposite for me. Is like I usually am very tolerant of songs even that I don't really care for. But some of Collier's songs are just, I don't know if it's they're too busy or too poppy for me or in art. I don't care for R&B or vocal jazz very much. So what but is I, I really... I really do feel like a lot of the tracks I, I have to skip. Well, uh, I, I talked about the ones on this one, uh, the covers. I think if I don't, I'm not interested in the cover version, that's more likely to go. I've, I found in my in your room, if we're going to move into discography, talking about everything he's ever done, I, he really sounds a lot like Stevie Wonder, and he mentions liking him a lot. And I, yeah. you know, I had some Stevie Wonder on vinyl, but I really had to be in the mood to listen to him. Oh my God! <laughs> Don't so, wonder. I'm not dissing him. I owned him. I have several albums, but I just had, if I'm not in the mood, I don't want to hear it, and so I just wouldn't put it on in general. I guess so. There, yeah. I think his his cover songs are really hit and miss for me. So I would skip uh, after hearing once. What? Why did he need to cover the Flintstones theme song? I, I that. <laughs> yeah, that I don't know. Actually, I agree with you. I do think that his cover of Every Little Thing She Does is magic was great 
but not well, a police, it captures not a captures, police lover. Okay, yeah, it captures the spirit and the emotion of the original. The glee, I guess, is there, and yeah. uh, I would never want to hear it if I'm not in the mood. It's another thing that I would. So again, the covers, I guess, is maybe that's the theme. Other than that, unless he's really like in entirely uh, radio R and B. Was saying, oh baby, that's that's pretty my impression of R and B music in general. It's just really, really long, drawn out saying, oh or baby. So like Mariah Carey. <laughs> oh goodness! <laughs> I told you my story about my roommate in Beijing, right? I think so. I don't remember it, but just for the record, I love Mariah Carey. Now go ahead. <laughs> How did I ever be friends with you? For those who haven't heard this lovely story, I had a Chinese roommate in college in Beijing, a study abroad program in 2001 a guy and uh, he asked me and we talked about music and I say well I love music and he says he loves music and he asks me uh, so do you like Mariah Carey and I laughed at him and I regretted it instantly I just thought you're a man you're a dude dudes don't listen to Mariah Carey it's not allowed and everyone didn't say that Everyone what? should listen to Mariah Carey. There should be a required Mariah Carey class in elementary school. I, I hate you. <laughs> no. So oh, I, yeah. I, it's great when it, someone's trying to make you do something you don't like. No, right. I, I, we can go into that another time. But I, my, my point, though, is that I think I, I pretty much ruined my relationship with my roommate. I'm just glad nobody else was there to see me laugh at him. And I, I apologize if you're out there listening, Yenjun. Probably not likely. I do regret it. You know, it was a reflex. No, he, he then, uh, my roommate, then uh, we were given a cultural stipend to try Chinese food on the dollar of the program that we were in. And we all suggested that our roommates show us to the restaurant that we should try and try new foods and broaden our horizons, as I've been saying. And so my roommate and another classmate did the, we're not going to tell you what this is until you try it game with us in a fancy Beijing restaurant that had many delicacies. And and anyone knows who knows anything about Chinese delicacies, the more strange and more exotic they are, the the, the better the dish is and the more face you get by by trying them. And so uh, out comes this big steaming plate of something that clearly looks uh, very squishy and not normally what we would consider meat. And so my classmate and I, we, we took a bite and it was very squishy, very chewy, like the texture of octopus or something. And so we asked then, okay, yeah, we tried it. We not going to try more of it or eat more of it or, you know, finish the plate. It was a huge, like serving size Thanksgiving plate, like the size of a plate you'd normally put your mashed potatoes on to be passed around to your whole family of 10 at the table. We asked the, my roommate, what, okay, so what? tell us what this dish is. What was it? It was clearly steamed some kind of meaty thing and, and innard, not meat so much. And so he didn't know the word for penis. So he called it an expletive and he, his accent was very strong in English and that we didn't know how to say it in Chinese either. So I eventually I learned that it, we, he, and maybe because I laughed at him for Mariah Carey, he ordered, ordered us a super huge family size helping of a bull's penis. Sounds so. good. <laughs> Maybe you'd like it. I'm sure they, they wanted to scare us, and I'm not sure how hard he took my laughing at him for Mariah Carey. So that's my roommate story. Just a couple more questions. I talked about uh, Nebaluyo and the, the Elvis M&M elephants in the room, and I think that applies more on Volume 1 than Volume 2 and also Volume 3 for basically being, a, as I mentioned, a skinny white dude singing R&B. Uh, oh, that's what, more what you mean by Elvis M&M elephants. Mm. Yes, 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 yes. They take the African-American style of music and make it palatable for 
white consumers. <laughs> if Jacob Collier had been more commercially successful, not that he's not successful, but if he were selling millions of copies and going platinum and so forth, I think it would be a bigger issue than it is. I don't think it matters how many albums he sells. Or it matters more how he goes about it and what credit he gives and whether he lifts up those voices or not. Okay. Like, like anybody has to. You have to list the people on the, in the liner notes who, who played what and, and, and so on. And I think most of his songs where he has a, a, another vocalist or another instrumental instrument player that he does say featuring on the, on the, in the title of the track. So I won't fault him for it. We've mentioned his YouTube videos. I think they're a, an elaborate throwback or update to the era of music videos with the band playing the song. I think that's gone the way of the dodo. And when we have so many digital effects at our disposal that not many videos exist of people just playing the music. Do you like those kind of videos more or don't care? With the band playing the, the instruments? I would say early music videos is generally a lot more the band. Yeah singing and playing the song than there are nowadays. I would say that I don't watch videos enough to have an opinion. <laughs> All right. Well, I should have known. What do you think of the rest of his discography? This is your favorite, number two. How do you rank the rest of them? I think number two is my favorite. In my room, I probably haven't listened to enough to... I don't know. I, I have trouble ranking things because it's very fluid. Uh, I think In My Room has some great songs, but it's not that cohesive, which, you know, part of it's just a collection of his YouTube stuff. So, yes, indeed. That's why. <laughs> um, yeah. But like, I really like the song Savior off of that album. In My Room, I like, despite the fact that it's a cover. I mean, there's there's mm -hmm. a lot of songs that I... Yeah, there are good covers and bad covers is all I'm saying, so... Yeah, Volume 1, some songs I really love. I also don't think... I don't know, I guess none of his albums are that cohesive. How cohesive can you be when you're <laughs> genre-spanning? You know, even mm -hmm. though I don't hold with genre, I, I can tell that it's not one genre. <laughs> volume 1, I, I have a soft spot for because I have much more of a classical background than a jazz background. So my ears find it pleasant to listen to this style of classical music. And I shouldn't say classical, my music theory teacher would kill me for it. I should say orchestral. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, yeah, serious, serious divides. You want me to rank all his album? I think that's difficult. But if I had to... Well, we're going to get to rating say, in a second, so... I would say two, one in my room, three. Okay. So a lot of people have not expressed a lot of love for three, although it is the album pick on All Music Guide and the one that's actually nominated as an album for the uh, Rangers. And I think the other albums do suffer somewhat from basically being a compilation of his YouTube work, as mm -hmm. you mentioned, so that it's hard to transition. I don't know necessarily because of the genre switching as much. I think, you know, if you're, if you're that skilled, go ahead and... and jump from one to the other. And I do think that his personal style of making music is so strong that everything does feel cohesive in the sense that it's all him, inimitably him. Yeah. So a longer leash than most people to go from one, even from song to song on an album, one to the next. I'll say that three is the only album where I'll skip a track. And that track is number two, Count the People. Yeah, I've only listened to that album twice, so I, I couldn't say which ones I'd necessarily skip or like. But I'd say also probably my least favorite just because it's more R&B. I think that leads us to the finale of the first half of our first episode together, and that is to give a rating. How would you rate the album Jesse Volume 2 from 2019? Like in a numbery way, or...? I asked you to do your homework, Hannah. <laughs> <laughs> what is your rating system? Is it a five-star? Is it a thumbs-up, thumbs-down? Is it a out of ten? Oh, I didn't read that um, part of my homework. Well, you, I don't know. I probably, I probably ignored it on purpose because I don't... I can't... I never really... 
Do you think of albums that way or not? No, I don't. I don't think of albums that way. I, How they do you come, compare? How they do you come compare one I really album like to another? I like them for a while, and sometimes I like them forever, and sometimes I stop liking them. You know, sometimes they're an anthem for a certain part of my life, and sometimes they're just timeless, and you don't know until you die. So I <laughs> um, have only known about Jacob Collier for probably a year, even less, maybe. So for me to be able to give him a rating, any of his albums a rating, I just I can't. Okay. You know, I, I have loved, 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 loved albums and at the time would have said, you know, they're a 10 out of 10 out of 10. And now I look back on it and I never listen to them or or some, some flaw become readily apparent. So I would have taken you, given your musicianship and your training and your opinions about good and bad music, that there is such a thing, that there is there's, something. There, there is such a thing as good and bad music, yes. And there's and such there, a thing as music that I like and music that I don't like. But um, it sounds like your way to rate an album is entirely how you feel in a certain time in your life and that there's nothing static or stationary or about an album or about any music that's other than how you feel at the moment that you're listening to it. It's true there's other stuff about it but you're asking me to rate it so that's going to be based on how I feel. I mean okay. you want me to rate objectively his virtuosity then sure. <laughs> like but I, I'm not even qualified to rate that but sure at least it's in an objective measure I guess. I have no problem with subjective ratings either. I, I All of my ratings are openly subjective and it's just basically do I want to hear this or not yeah, I mean, okay well look any any artist whose entire discography i've heard i'm going to give a 10 out of 10 to because there aren't very many there's probably under 10 artists in the world like that how do you compare between albums then, in general whether his or from all that you've heard because you are an album listener a lot of people who just listen to songs i can understand i it seems less worthwhile to rate a song because they're more often short as a body of work as a piece of work as an over my french is bad but uh, how do you evaluate an album i, I don't i just like it or I don't, I don't like so it so it's I a thumbs up it, thumbs I down like, yes yeah like when i listen to it i'm giving it a thumbs up by choosing to listen to it and uh, the <laughs> the collection of thumbs up through my life gives i don't know okay. i just like it or i don't like it clearly all of his albums would be thumbs up yeah of course okay so that doesn't tell us very much so can you give us some examples of albums that you didn't like thumbs down examples of albums that i didn't like probably not because i probably turned them off <laughs> okay but you don't remember any of them in particular any that i pushed on you i know you didn't like uh, dura durian's uh, flower planet you probably don't even remember that you did not like the books the lemon of pink uh don't remember yeah yeah i think that anything like i can't remember the stuff i don't like because i just immediately forgot about it okay so if it doesn't stick with you it's a thumbs down like i'll absolutely tell you i don't like it and why well, you when, when you when you try to have me listen to it but then you know a year later i'm not gonna be like oh i remember that horrible band tried to make me listen to i get that a thumbs down i just don't remember it i can think of artists that i don't like yeah well that's different though that's different i would yeah. i would also rate artists as yes or no thumbs up thumbs down do i want to listen to it but i think there's a lot of in between stuff with an album where like i mentioned this is more likely than other albums that i have to skip some songs that i don't like and strongly don't like <laughs> hey it's my turn to ask you a question that you're gonna hate uh -oh. is it possible for an artist that you dislike a lot is it possible for them to ever put out an album that you like i love that question that's a great question i want to be patronizing of you and say wow what a great question Backward. and uh Absolutely, yes, certainly. I would have to think for a while to give an example. Plenty of artists I don't like. Rap artists, I think it's more even more visceral. Yes or no, thumbs up, thumbs down. I, I don't think I like Kanye, but I've never heard any, any of his albums. Country artists, certainly. Everybody loves Lucinda Williams, my mother and my co-hosts of past. And, you know, could she put out an album that 
I'd like, yeah, entirely possible, but you'd have to change your style is all. <laughs> so could Hanson do it? Don't. I, I, I'm editing I that out. Name, I said the name on your podcast. Can Hanson do it? <laughs> you, you, you destroyed everything now. No. No, they could not. <laughs> Why? <laughs> they are just beyond the. They are beyond the pale. With every bone of my body, with every listening power that I have, I despise them. Well, what if they and put every, out an album that you would love, but you would never know it and try them out? That's uh, you know possible that that could happen, but uh, it's just I couldn't even imagine it. That's the short answer, and I we can re-engage on that another day i think i need to give my rating for jesse too okay went back and forth on how high or low i thought about when i first listened whether i should be snobbish and say that another story this is full of stories from high school and music education days when i was in middle school our band director uh, asked us to give an example of a band that was prominent or a representative of the 1980s and everybody gave the usual michael jackson uh, run dmc i think somebody liked her aerosmith etc Lots of hard rock and metal, and everybody said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I said, the Talking Heads, of whom David Byrne was the leading member. And my band director said, I don't know. I don't listen to that kind of music. And so that, to me, is the band that I like from the 80s that represents the 80s. And to be told by my music teacher that, well, maybe it's not representative. Maybe you're not valid. It doesn't count. So I thought about giving the same snarky answer to Jacob Collier to say that this is not an album or the kind of music that I would ever choose to listen to by myself, which is true. I probably will not listen to it again, but I did appreciate some of the songs and learning, and certainly there was a lot to talk about. I appreciated all the technical things in the interviews. So that all factors in, and overall I would rate it uh, 5.5 out of 10, which is to say that I think it does a lot of things that are interesting. I don't necessarily appreciate them or want to hear it again. I mentioned I listened to the album probably 10 times in preparation, and some tracks I really did not like, and that uh, Sully's Sours the album experience experience for So it's unusual that I, you know, if I like anything, that I dislike anything so much. So it's polarizing, I would say. And I think your own experience with your parents and online reviews on AMG also suggests that he is polarizing, that some love him and some hate him. There, there are not a lot of people who just say meh. Although you kind of did. You give him a 5 out of 10. 5.5, which is Man. 5 is five is where I'm completely <laughs> indifferent. And 5.5 suggests that there are some things that I like yeah. and that it just doesn't always connect and that they're, you know, it's, it's a mixed bag, I'd say. But overall, yeah. it's it was a pleasant experience. Yeah, and I want to point out that your, your rating was also based on your feelings and what you like. Oh, absolutely subjective. I make no claims to objectivity there. Right. Well, I'm just saying because you, you brought it up with me when I was struggling to rate something because of how my appreciation changes over time. When you said, well, is it just rating it based on what you like at the time? And yeah, so are you. We both are. Yeah, I, I, I don't know how much longer you want to, to go into this, but uh, I think that both subjective and relative to other albums that I've, I saw one of my former co-hosts uh, has said that if I give this an eight and something that I don't really like and also an eight, then it uh, kind of throws the whole, the whole thing into question. What does it actually mean to give two albums the same rating? And I think that albums that I've given 5.5 were never as elaborate or poppy or well-produced or complex. It's just a matter of whether I want to hear it or not. And I think that as I am 40 now, my tastes are less likely to change than they have been over the development of my youth and so forth. So where I could listen to something from high school that I would have given a 10 back in high school, almost certainly not anymore. So I do think that tastes change over time, but I do also think that there are other standards to use, such as genre and the development of uh, new styles or development of a band or a musician or artist over time 
where that they are doing something that is new and interesting. And I think that uh, you can take a step back and say, well, this is and within a discography, as you did, we were able to basically rank. You can see that In My Room is more of a kind of uh, feeling his way around and just putting his YouTube stuff together, whereas Jesse feels like a you know a more deliberate, measured, and intentional kind of uh, ordering of tracks, where he has a lot, to, I think he had something like 50, 50 songs to work with over the course of four albums, and so that things are put in certain places in the album in a very specific and purposeful way, which I think makes for a more cohesive and better album overall. So that's a mouthful, huh? Yeah. Can you, yeah. Can you mean, cut my pretenses with a knife? <laughs> I don't want to. <laughs> No, you're you're done. This is this has been a strange and unusual, not entirely pleasant experience for you. I mean, I'll say that, and you know, I do food reviews and I give them rankings from one to five. But I would prefer if the site I used did not require me to give a rating. I would rather just write about it. And I think I feel the same way about music. You know, to the extent that I want to talk about it, which is not a lot really, I'd rather talk about it than give it a star rating or a number rating. But overall, I'd rather just listen to it. Well, again, I still think it's useful as a shortcut and that's pretty much for all the time that we have to devote to music for most people is almost none they need a shortcut they need something to say well this is something i should pay attention to or not give the time of day so and i think numerical ratings do that yeah yeah that's fine so thanks for hanging with us we're now going to leave jacob collier behind gradually in a transition I can start by comparing the two in terms of their appearance. They're actually, I don't know if it's their like... appearance. Yes, yes. Very important to, to all listening of music. How does the person look? Oh, uh, well, I was not prepared to, to discuss their appearance, but <laughs> go for it. Do, do you think that it's possible that there's a certain type of person, like in your, I don't know if your college acapella group, did it attract a certain appearance of guy, skinny white dudes with dark hair? I cannot recall whether my college had an acapella group other than that I tried out for it and it was not accepted. Oh, so therefore boycott, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, therefore I, was, I wasn't thinking about what they looked like, just I was sad. Okay, yeah, understandable. It was co-ed. So, okay, yeah. Of course, of course, yeah. Both Jacob Collier and Hyperpotamus, they are skinny white dudes with dark hair, and maybe Hyperpotamus could be considered Jacob Collier's swarthy, scraggly brother. What do you think? Do they look alike um, or not? You know, like you, Jacob Collier is a quarter Asian. I did not know. Yeah. <laughs> So I don't know if you're going to call him a skinny white dude. You got to own that <laughs> that yourself, that. which I don't know if you're prepared to do. Situational uh, ethnic identity, I think, is, uh, is the term. And it's uh, advantageous. We will bring out our Asian card. But otherwise, we're pretty white, I'd say. Okay. Well, good sharing. <laughs> All right. All right. So we can move on from that to more substantive things. Both of them, they're on YouTube and we can talk about, let's let's start with the one that you thought found was painful, different ways of covering the Beatles. Obviously, we talked about Collier's Here Comes the Sun. You said that Hyperpotamus's Strawberry Fields Forever was painful. Why? Oh, man. Well, I did just listen to it for the first time today. And I, for the first six minutes, it was not recognizable as mm-hmm. Strawberry Fields Forever, which, okay, you know, that's not a disqualifier. That's fine. But even once it was, it didn't have that satisfying pop into like, oh, that's the song I know, like a lot of covers do. There's a lot of covers that don't start out recognizable, but they have a certain moment where it just resolves, you know, the chaos resolves into familiarity. And it's like, ah, uh-huh. <laughs> 
With this huh. cover, the chords were so, I don't know, A, implied, and B, just they would slide into place. But by the time they slid into place, he had already finished singing the phrase. And it was almost like the background and his voice were chasing each other and they were never in line. And, you know, I don't want to get into a whole what's in tune mean a thing with you again, but it wasn't. And <laughs> I don't know, it was just busy. And like, I know his music is busy. And usually I don't mind it, but it seemed, I don't know, sloppily put together. It was a live show. So, okay. I just, it was painful for me to hear. There's going to be a lot more jankiness to live performances. And I, for one, you know, think it's pretty cool when you go for six minutes, what the heck is this guy doing? And then all of a sudden it clicks and maybe not comes together. It was all pretty disjointed. I would agree. But then mm -hmm. you realize, oh wait, you could, if you didn't have the title there and you just played it for somebody and they say, why are you exposing me to this? And then, then they get to the part where he actually sings the lyrics to the song. He's like, oh, I think that's a pretty cool moment. Um, I think it is, too, when it happens. I just didn't think it, it did happen in this case. <laughs> I was actually expecting the first like two or three minutes when I was listening to it. I'm like, oh, I'm going to send it to this friend who likes the Beatles and likes to cover the Beatles. And then from minute four, I'm like, mm, maybe not. And then when the moment happened where it was supposed to click, like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sending it. You just don't even like it at all. I, I didn't like it at all. Caveat, I listened to it once because you told me about it today. Yeah. Well, I've only listened to it once, too, and I probably won't listen to it again, but I thought it was novel. The whole idea of novelty, I think, is there with both of these guys, that they're pretty unusual in terms of how they assemble a song together. And they, right. they both do it very, very, very different ways. But I think vocal layering is fundamental to both of them. And, uh, yeah. And, you know, it's not the process because his rooftop video with In the Time, I think. In the Time, yeah. I, I did like that one. I did enjoy that one. It was built the same way. Um, it didn't come together till the end. Well, not really. That, that one did come together earlier. But, yeah, the process is fine. You didn't have the expectation for In the Time that it would congeal into a recognizable song, though, that you knew and said, if you're going to play this song, you have to do X, Y, and Z. Well, actually, I did because I had heard that song before I watched that video. Okay. Hmm. But, but you weren't, you know, you weren't concerned. Cover. You weren't, a cover of himself. Yeah. You weren't concerned that this isn't that song because he doesn't do these certain things, though. Did it just match the studio recording much more closely? I mean, sure. It matched the studio recording much more closely because it's his own song. But I don't think the Collier's version of Here Comes the Sun was that much, that much more similar. It was just, I think, better put together because it's a studio album with probably thousands of tracks. I don't think you can even compare those two covers, really. Okay. Very different ways to approach not only covers, but specifically the Beatles cover to take something that is already catchy and poppy and turned into something that would be considered like a, an art installation or a, a avant-garde experimental song, I think. Right. There. And you you much prefer Keep It Poppy. Uh, no, that's not, not what I'm saying at all. Not at all. Okay. Nope. <laughs> Strawberry Fields Forever, I would say, though, is a less catchy song anyway just the oh. Beatles room. Then here comes the sun. And okay, I guess. if I had been in the room when Hyperpotamus was recording his cover of Strawberry Fields Forever, I probably would have been impressed. To literally be, physically be in the room with someone and see them do that, you can focus on what's impressive about it. Sending it to me as a YouTube video was a different experience. Something is lost in the medium and there's something about a live show that moves you and allows you to tolerate imperfections. Yeah, when they zoomed out and you saw that it was just some people's living room, I got the feeling of that. Even though I wasn't in that living room, I, I suddenly saw that if I had been in the living room, I would have been like, oh, that was pretty cool. That was a pretty interesting take. But just within the context of me having heard Hyperpotamus and having seen his rooftop video, 
No, I didn't have that feeling. If, if we want to compare not only the, the covers, but compare their YouTube video styles and how they use vocal loops to put songs together, or not necessarily loops in Collier's case, why do you think that Jacob Collier has millions of views, but not hundreds of millions, and high production value with lots of video tricks and maybe hundreds of takes each? Compare that to Hyperpotamus, who is, I think, also impressive, but nothing more than 40,000 views, no frills, and maybe one take in each case. Does that make a difference in terms of how many people watch it and its appeal, accessibility? It's interesting that you chose these two to compare to each other. I would never have put them in the context of comparisons. Hyperpotamus, that pedal board that he uses, it has a ton of restrictions on it for what he can do mm-hmm. that Collier doesn't have by recording individual tracks and layering them hundreds and hundreds upon each other. When you have a loop, you can't even change keys, right? Mm-hmm. Because you're, you're doing the same thing over and over. You're just adding to the same thing. So there's no like shape to the song or shape isn't the, isn't the right word, but you can't, yeah, you can't build a rise and fall when you're constrained to repetitiveness with your pedal board. So I, I don't think you can even say like, why does one have have more views and more of an audience and a different following than the other. You have to go all the way down to a qualitatively different kind of music. I mean, just because you're layering, the only similarity is that they're layering their voices. Do you find one much more impressive than the other? Much more impressive? Or more appealing? More appealing? Yeah, I mean, I find I like harmonic progressions, so I guess I prefer the non-loop style because it allows for, for building, it allows for you know, song shape and everything like that. I think that what Hyperpotamus does would be more fun for me to do. They both look like they're having fun. That's another similarity between them is they always look just thrilled all the time. <laughs> um, but when you watch Hyperpotamus live, you know, you can tell that it's a fun thing to be doing that he's doing and layering and mastering and editing, mixing thousands of tracks on top of each other. Not really what I would call thrilling and i doubt even jacob collier would argue that so it just requires a lot of technical skill and patience and persistence is it much more impressive to you the way collier puts his songs together no i mean i I don't understand the question (laughs) okay are you more in awe of collier than hyperpotamus i can't make that value judgment as like you're asking me whether i'm more impressed that someone designed the sydney opera house or did brain surgery i i can't (laughs) <laughs> Interesting. They're both musicians. They're both we're focusing on vocals. I would agree that they're obviously polar opposites. And Jacob Collier has a lot of vocal focus, but obviously is not a cappella. Quite, quite the contrary. is quite maximalist and uh, orchestral in his accompaniment. Whereas, obviously, even the percussion, it's beatboxing over a cappella vocals for Hyperpotamus. So I would expect someone who is not you and who is more opinionated to say, well, one guy's just a hack and the other is, is just a nerd or, if, or something like that. Is that, is that your take on it, as one is a hack and one's a nerd? To be negative, no, I think they're both very impressive. I am impressed with both of them and their novel approach to making a song. I think certainly if something takes six months, <laughs> compare Collier's six months to make a song versus the six minutes of the song that he records on the Barcelona rooftop, you know, just in terms of that, you should say, well, obviously it's much easier, quote unquote, to make a song the way Hyperpotamus does. Because it's well, I don't know faster, how quickly. they're writing it, right? Because Jacob Collier can sit down and play a six-minute song on a roof, too. Um, <laughs> I, I don't think, you know, do we know if Hyperpotamus writes his songs like we watched him performing them? I really doubt that that's all improv. Probably that not improv. was all improv. If it was all improv, that he just did that on the rooftop out of nowhere, and then the album version was based on that, that would be extremely impressive. I don't mm. think that's what's happening. So I'm going to ask, the, the question I want to pose is, could Hyperpotamus make songs the way Jacob Collier does, and could Jacob Collier make them the way Hyperpotamus does, if they tried uh, no. 
We'll, we'll have to ask them. We will have to give them the test. Well, call them up. Come on. What are you waiting yeah, for? Call them up. You have a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> right. That gives you the right to call these guys up. That's right. Pretty much. I think what Jacob Collier is doing maybe requires a wider set of skills just because you have to know how to play all of the instruments he knows how to play and you have to have the vocal range he has and you have to know how to use logic and you have to have the extreme depth of jazz theory that he has. Mm. So I guess it's more complex. I, I don't think that makes it more impressive. What Hyperpotamus does, you know, it requires you to either be perfect on the first take or be okay with not perfect on the first take, which is, I think, more what he does, and then just roll with it. And that's an impressive skill. He has a pretty wide range, too. I was noticing that on the rooftop video. It's just not as wide of a set of skills, but I'm not sitting here ranking how impressed I am by each, okay. each guy on YouTube. And, and you know that I don't usually watch YouTube videos of musicians. I just listen to them. No, right. I think it's wrong of me and not fair to set things up just because we're in, the two artists are in the same episode together to make it competition between the two it shouldn't be just curious what you think. no but i mean if you want to call up jacob collier and say like i need you to make a, a recording of your songs on a rooftop of the pedal board i, I think you should <laughs> all right I'll, I'll do that after we edit edit this one more thing about pop vocal virtuosity i think it can be a little bit more difficult to appreciate than say in opera where the whole point of opera or an experimental avant-garde song is to push the boundaries of vocal range and experimentation with chords and so forth whereas i think pop that's not the purpose of pop music right um i find hyperpotamus more easy to listen to than opera neither of them is an opera singer they're both trying to approach pop music from a more i think there's a lot more intellectual and experimental and technical aspects to it than most pop music would you disagree no yeah i would disagree i think that pop music has a lot more behind it than you give it credit for all right i guess then i should say bubblegum pop is that okay but boy band you want to bring up boy pans on this podcast? I no, don't I don't. Here, okay. <laughs> I've not to a boy band intensively since Hanson in the nineties. You can say them again. Yeah, and I again. said their name the second half of your podcast as well, and like making it impossible for you to this completely is... cut them out. So. Yeah, I mean, like, if you're, what you're saying is, um, I'm also going to swear on your podcast, you ready? If what you're talking about bleep pop, then sure, yeah, it's more complex than bleep pop, yeah, you win. But anyway, I think that I can also say that in pop music and singing specifically, similar to, I compare it to watching NASCAR, in that you're watching something that almost everyone can do, or may think that they are at least okay at doing, but maybe are not professional level. Everybody thinks they're a good driver, and I, for one, don't appreciate watching NASCAR cars because it's just watching people drive appreciating people that sing really really well for people who think they can sing a little bit do you think it's easier and more relatable to be excellent and world best at something that everybody can do or is it better to have an obscure skill that nobody else can come close to you on and everybody thinks is exotic do you, which do you think is easier i think you're trying to force a value judgment but i don't know what's better okay well i'm not saying better i'm just saying what is it easier to appreciate <laughs> easier okay what what are the options <laughs> You have the option of a skill that is really obscure and unique and that nobody else can come close to, that no one else would think, like, say, juggling flaming swords and torches that nobody else would ever do. There's something really novel like that versus something that everybody can do. Everybody thinks they can sing. Everybody thinks they can drive. And being really, really good at something that everybody can do a little bit, is that easier um, to appreciate? Is it easier for the person or easier for me to appreciate? I mean, because it's easier for a person, I think, to find an obscure thing that nobody 
nobody can do and then learn to do it, it's easier to get famous that way. Right. You're not competing with other people who do the same obscure thing that you do, or as many people. Mm-hmm. Um, to, get really at, to get really good at a common thing, that's probably harder. Okay. You're competing with, you know, three billion people. What's mm-hmm. easier for me to appreciate? I think it's easier for me to appreciate also somebody who does something well that all of us think we can do. So we should be more appreciative of these guys because they're excellent or in the top 0.001 percentile of singing pop vocals and harmonies, whereas opera singers, who cares about opera? It's an obscure, exotic talent that nobody cares about anymore. Man, I don't know a whole lot of people who are like, I can make vocal harmonies. <laughs> I think they can, though. They're, they're wrong. They're, they'd be wrong, but if you tried to sing a, a Motown classic duet or something, ain't no mountain high enough, they, everyone would be willing to accompany you on that. <laughs> no, uh, my experience suggests that that is not true. <laughs> <laughs> really? People have shied away from it, say, no way I can do that? Huh, interesting. It's either that they don't think they can do it, or they try to do it and they can't do it. Well, obviously, that's more likely the, the second one. Everyone who tries fails. Nobody thinks they can sing an opera song, but I would think people think, oh, sure, I can sing a pop song. It's tuneful. Yeah. No, I mean, interestingly enough, you know, because my, my music has a lot of harmony in it, and mm-hmm. the most common feedback I get is, oh, you know, your harmony is really interesting. I could never do that, which okay. I think is not true because my harmony is not that impressive or special, but that is the most common feedback I get. I, I don't think that people are looking at either of those guys and saying that they could do that. All right, fair enough. They're in the class of people who are so good at something that everybody can do, that it is all the more impressive, I guess, is, is what you're saying, kind of. Right. Although, I mean, if you're going to force something, then if you're looking at these two guys and what, if, and a person who is want to say something like, I can do that, is more likely to say it about Hypopotamus. Okay. Because if you watch some dude do something in six minutes and you just watch him the whole time, and you know what he's doing and none of it is superhuman, you know, mm-hmm. if you're the kind of person who's not thinking very hard, you might be like, yeah, you could totally do that. Whereas I don't think anyone's going to look at Collier and say that. Unless okay. they're really, really stupid. <laughs> All right. I think they're, they're both on a different level than, uh, than say, like a high school musical troupe where they're good singers, but not amazingly great world class. That would be a, the, the level of comparison. That there's, they're both far beyond that. In summary, why would you say that Hyperpotamus only has 40,000 views is not by any means a viral superstar? I don't know. <laughs> 40,000 views on what? YouTube? YouTube, yeah. They're like orders of magnitude. Millions and millions. Neither of them is Gangnam style or Baby Shark level. Hundreds of millions. But I'll let that one pass and not ask you what I know what Gangnam Style is. I'm not sure about Baby Shark, but I don't I don't no, want to know. The, no, you um, don't. I mean, Jacob Collier is kind of optimized for YouTube. He started as a YouTube star. I don't know if Hyperpotamus did or not, mm. but Jacob Collier's music videos have visuals and there's like all of his heads wearing animal hats with bear ears on them and like <laughs> drawing the- and like animated. It's meant for YouTube. It's practically curated for it and it probably was. Sure. Hyperpotamus yeah. is just a dude on a roof. I, I don't know what his other videos, <laughs> <laughs> other videos look like, but yeah, it's like naturally not going to spread. Also, Jacob Collier started out covering things like the Flintstones that everybody's familiar with. So I think people are more likely to be like, oh, hey, I know that song. Oh, look at all those floating heads. Whoa, bare ears. And then, then some guy on a roof whose song starts with him saying, ew, in a really low voice. <laughs> <laughs> you know, again, not comparable. Well, I think they're both impressive, but I agree that one works the cuteness factor a heck of a lot more. Being the swarthy, scraggly version of Jacob Collier is not going to get the ladies maybe as interested, I don't know, or the, the gay guys. Does Collier have a large gay male following? I don't know. I would assume so. That's honestly the weirdest question you've asked me on this podcast. <laughs> we could continue to get weirder, but I think we should probably yeah, rein it back in. You're probably right. <laughs> I think we've compared enough. We should probably get into 
into the actual subject of the album that we're going to talk about by Hyperpotamus, which is Delta. All right, so the basic specs for it here first. Delta was released in 2011. It is the second album uh, after Largo Bailon, which he self-distributed on a bicycle around town. It is 10 tracks, 35 minutes, fully a cappella. It is on El Molino Music. The first album, Largo Bailon, is on All Music, but this one did not even crack the database and is not known on the site All Music, so there are no reviews or ratings for it. No reviews of Delta? Not, not one. It's not even on the site. Mm. So ultra, super obscure. This is an out-of-obscurity exclusive, we could, mm. we could call it. Just makes up for the Grammy-winning other half. Yeah, see, I have to overcompensate because it's entirely too famous, the first half. Oh my gosh, I, I've compromised my standards. Anyway, I can say that this guy, he got his start probably not on YouTube, as you mentioned. He was apparently uh, in a band previously, and he was tired of hauling his instruments around, according to articles on him. So he got tired of doing all of that for little recognition, just being a supporting member of a band. He wanted maybe all the attention for himself, possibly also, which led him to go solo a cappella. And your thoughts on a cappella music in general, or whether it was a good idea to go busking on the streets around the world in search of greater recognition. Uh, my thoughts on acapella music? I like sure. it. I like to record it. I think it's cool to see what people can imitate using just their mouths. You never looked into pentatonics, did you? Nope. I confirmed that they have 600 million views on YouTube for their most viewed video. So it really just blows Jacob Collier out of the water. Part of the show is what explains that some get 600 million views, some get 4 million, and some get 40,000. Why do some things go viral that maybe shouldn't, and why don't things that do? I mean, it's not that I don't appreciate pentatonics either. I think they similarly do work the visuals a lot, and they cover very famous songs like Daft Punk and such, and Christmas music that everybody loves already. So how much are you pandering to your audience? I think a lot more to do with than we may have recognized in just comparing the two. I'm sure someone wrote an equation for what makes something go viral. Do you think that acapella is pop music? I think we discussed last time that I don't understand categories very well. Okay. And don't care. So, and don't care. <laughs> not, not the right person to ask that question. Is acapella experimental or is it conventional and accessible? It depends on how you do it. I don't think you can call the medium experimental. It's all that people had from the time they evolved to have voice boxes. So it's not experimental to just use your voice to make music. But yeah, I'm sure there's some more experimental and less experimental bands out there in terms of what they think is possible using their voice, whether you're just using it to sing in the most basic sense of the word, or you're using it to make whale noises, or you're using it to <laughs> make drum noises, or you're using it to make the noise of a creaky door. Like I just think it depends on how you're willing to define what you can do with your voice. So if it's not experimental, would you at least agree that it is novel and unusual? <laughs> I don't know. Unusual compared to like unusual, what's 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 usual music? The usual music is what's on top 40. Could you imagine an acapella group getting onto the billboard charts? I, I don't know what's on the top 40. I don't know. I think you have to answer this yourself. Oh goodness. Okay, well I just think it's an unusual way to approach a song. Obviously there are instruments for a reason and I do think it is experimental. I would disagree with you and say that especially if you're trying to mimic the sounds of a specific instrument or go entirely without non-vocal instruments. I think that in itself is, nowadays at least, maybe because it's old, as you say, didn't used to be. It's been experimentable for as long as we've been on the planet. But I think nowadays, especially in terms of technical studio wizardry and so on, auto-tune and hiring people in, and as you say, that uh, Hyperpotamus could still make 
Jacob Collier's music, he would just need to hire out all of the instruments, presumably, that he didn't play, just like Collier. No, I don't think he could make Jacob Collier's music. Okay, well, that's definitive, then. The statement's made. Without having his background in music theory. Sure, sure, sure. I can see that. But that's mostly the vocal portion of it, and just in terms of being more orchestral in his accompaniment rather than a cappella, is what I think could be replicated. Do you want to share some thoughts on the album? I learned about them when you put a song of his on a mix. Actually, it was from a different album, but this one ended up getting more car playtime, mm-hmm. and so it became the preferred album. I enjoy it. It's catchy. He doesn't do beatboxing in a standard way. I enjoy that. You know, he, he doesn't try to replicate an entire drum set. He doesn't use drum sounds exclusively. Like he'll make rhythm with a tone sometimes or even make rhythm with the word that doesn't fit with the rest of it. So I appreciate that. I would describe some of his background as clattering, which is, yeah, also unusual. Clattering as a noise? Yeah. So noisier um, and more chaotic. Lot, right. Noisier and chaotic. There's a sound on each subdivision of the beat. There's not a whole lot of subtlety in terms of like implied beats. Like there's something Thing on every beat mostly that's a technical point i would just add that yeah i think that there are quote-unquote better beatboxers out there just like there are better singers out there than no, i'm not him, saying but... he's a worse beatboxer i'm saying that he's not taking taking drums very literally no not taking drums very literally what the heck does that mean put that into real english <laughs> <laughs> when he's imitating drums he's not literally imitating drums he's not saying like okay well i need to make the sound of a bass drum as closely as i can or uh, i need to make the sound of a cymbal with my teeth and my tongue behind my teeth <laughs> like there, there's something that needs to be on this beat on the offbeat or on the syncopated beat and i'm going to put something there but it's not necessarily going to be a drum sound but it's not a lyric either okay it's not rote imitation of specific drums. That makes sense. No, and I wasn't criticizing him. I was mainly saying that although there are people who are, I think, objectively or everyone would agree, better at beatboxing than him, they're not also likely the only instrument on the whole whole song or the whole album. And I think that he's, he's, his ability to both sing and do the rhythm for his own songs is novel. Yeah, and you know, you keep saying that he's such a great singer. And if you took the fact that he was doing everything out and it was just you just judged him on his singing, I don't know that he's an exceptional singer, really. Hmm. I guess to find it as an exceptional lead vocalist, I wouldn't say there's anything really exceptional about the way he does his lead vocals. It's more just that he is everything in his albums. You mentioned that your mom couldn't last a single track because he was not in, perfectly in tune. He kind of slides into tune. Sometimes I can handle that on his album, but I think the Strawberry Fields live show took that to an extreme that I could no longer handle it either. So I would also say that this fits into kind of a novelty album for me, if not experimental. I would still call it experimental, but I have a wide definition of that. I consider most things that aren't just straight pop a little, a little bit experimental. And so I would say that if you have something that's a novelty album I'm not going to want to listen to it maybe every week or every day or something but it's a nice change of pace Mm -hmm. and they have a challenge though if you're kind of a one trick pony you could even criticize it as this is you have a formula for how you make a song and it's all all done with the pedal board as you mentioned and looping those vocals these albums have a challenge of following their own rules sticking to that formula while also staying fresh from track to track did you find that after you've heard like a song or two you say okay I get it I want to listen to something else or can you listen to the whole album Kind of, although I'm not sure if I just like the first five songs better than the second five songs. I do tend to only listen to the first half more, but I'm not sure if it's, you know, acapella exhaustion or just that those songs are better. I don't don't know. Which songs in particular stood out to you? Looking at the track list, I don't remember which one's which. 
<laughs> it's a matter of titles not fitting the feeling or remembering the lyrics or something. Yeah. I can help jog your memory. If you, I think uh, if we compare this to, and I, I want you to compare this to why, first of all, did you prefer this album over the first one, Largo by Lone? I, I, I wouldn't say they're night and day. One is better than the other, but it seems that you think so. Oh, I don't. I don't even remember what Largo by Lone sounds like. I just like <laughs> <laughs> just All right. that in. Well, I would say that this one is poppier in that he's singing more lyrics. The other one is a lot less, it, a lot would be considered instrumental because there's no singing of lyrics. There's just vocal sounds on more of the tracks on the first one. I would say that it's also more repetitive, the first one, Largo by Lone. These are closer to pop songs. There's a chorus, for example, in the... Uh, yeah, well, and you did say that he was constrained to pedalboard on the album, which is not true. On the album, it's definitely not anything like his rooftop performance. There's Nothing like it? No, there's verses, there's choruses, there's key changes, there's lack of repetitiveness from measure to measure, which you can't have with the pedal board. I'm not saying he didn't use it, Mm -hmm. but if he did use it, he stitched several ones together. So the restrictions he has live, he didn't seem to have in the album. Well, I thought that the live version reproduced the song pretty well, but I would agree that there's almost certainly some studio production work going on and stitching things. That song's a slight exception. I mean, he has a complex pedal board. You know, it's not just one thing that repeats. He has a couple of different tracks he's adding to. Well, I think that specific song in the time I was mentioning in the album, it sounds like he's doing more with the mix electronically, especially at the end where it sounds like he's on a turntable or something. Not entirely vocal sounds, but mm-hmm. playing with a keyboard or a turntable or something. In addition to being poppier, this album, Delta, the lyrical themes are a little heavier on the lovin'. Mm. Uh, songs like uh, Monthly Airborne Commuter talks about teenage lust and the chorus, uh, I'm going to love you the way you want to on Tetris in Zurich. Mm-hmm. So it's really trying to butter somebody up, whoever's mm-hmm. listening. That, oh, that well, now that you say the lyrics, Tetris in Zurich has some cool rhythms. <laughs> Want to elaborate on cool rhythm? What, is, what makes it cool? What makes a rhythm cool? Or that song cool, <laughs> rhythmically. I'm going to love it's you one- the way you want to. No, okay, think of him singing that is and the, um, the bass line. Is it where you expect it to be? <laughs> so that, I think, is another close listener observation. I totally don't expect the bass line to be anywhere. I don't know. <laughs> I know you do. Everybody expects the bass line to be somewhere. Um, but next time you hear it, I believe that song starts with the bass line. I'm not sure. It at least has the bass line by itself for a lot of it. Hmm. And when the rest of the sounds come in, it's definitely not where you think it's going to be. There's a whole subreddit just about those kinds of songs where hmm. they start with a certain riff that where you assume you know where the down beat is and when the rest of the instruments come in you discover that you don't know where the downbeat is and some of the songs are so good at it that no matter how many times you listen to the song you can never predict it coming in interesting i would say the masters of layering in terms of and then stripping back or building to something and then hitting the the part of the song where it's just the baseline alone and you think wow that's a great baseline or something that the masters of that in my view are hard floor of the german techno band mm-hmm. yeah i, I could uh, imagine that and i think it's a good way to vary things within a song it's mostly in the range of like three or four minutes long or two minutes they're a little bit longer in addition to being popular yeah, the most mainstream example i can think of for that is drive my car by the beatles well i'll have to listen more carefully also the song such a surprise when uh, he sings very fondly and almost seductively about when you're inside and i wonder mm-hmm. do you think he's singing about quarantine predictively or do you think he's talking about sex Oh, I thought he was talking about sex because this album's from 2011. Okay, so he couldn't possibly have known that we'd be under quarantine, and so it's so nice when you're inside. That doesn't mean, you know, stay inside <laughs> and 
flatten the curve. It's probably not. I mean, are, are you are you asking me if Hyperpotamus is the psychic from nine years ago? If you can do an entire acapella album that that endows you with certain psychic abilities and probably see a pandemic coming at least ten years ahead, if you can do acapella music, mm-hmm. so we should all work on that. Build our psychic abilities and get more psychic friends. There's other songs that don't stick with you; they're just pleasant. If I have to sing you the chorus to jog your memory for most yeah, of them, can, can we do that? Can you sing the chorus of every song in order? <laughs> Yeah, because I know it. I didn't do my homework. Clearly, I should have prepared that. And then you would be chattering all the time about all the different downbeat patterns and, and so on, right? Yeah, I mean, I think I have to be listening to it. Sailboat, I know because I played it for somebody yesterday. And, and the two that you've sung, I now know again. <laughs> but <laughs> that's all it. Right. I feel like the two next to each other, Sailboat and De Camino, I enjoy for some reason. I just can't remember De Camino right now or why. The sailboat, why would you be singing about being on a sailboat? Is that just, does it sound nice? with his bass voice? I'll say that I'm not a lyric listener. I don't listen for them at all. I rarely know what people are talking about. And even when I write lyrics, it's more about the sound of the lyrics than what they actually mean. So all my feedback I get about, oh, we can't understand what you're saying. Why are you mumbling? It's because I almost don't want you to. You know, less that you overanalyze it's really what sounds sound good rather yeah. than what these lyrics mean so you know yeah why is he on a sailboat that don't i don't know don't care i think it sounds really good in his bass voice and i would agree with you and i'm definitely not a lyric listener myself so we're in the same boat in that sense i think the first one really sets the tone that he's going to be a little noisier mm-hmm. and be willing to incorporate non-musical elements to his vocals yep i mean that's the one my mom turned off halfway through <laughs> Well, she doesn't like dissonance and noise, right? So I didn't find that song particularly dissonant. I guess I'd have to ask her. I think the first tracks that he lays down are just, it's just like... The bass line is just guys saying, do, 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 which sounds kind of dumb, and it doesn't uh, really sound like a song for a while. It's kind of yeah, dumb. I mean, it takes a while for it to sound like a song, is how I would describe his cover of Strawberry Fields Forever, but not really this album. I think they all sound like songs, other than the, the one that starts again with him saying, ew. That one took a while. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> the one on the rooftop took a while in the album too I think there's one I don't remember which one this is where he sings about like why not just stay in Spain blah 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 mm-hmm. that one never sounds like a song to me I usually skip it okay so there are some songs that you do skip on this one yeah it's just he's just saying the same thing over and over and do you make a distinction between his Spanish versus English lyrics a distinction how do you prefer one or the other sing mm-hmm. along more to English <laughs> I mean, by virtue of me speaking English, yes. I think that typically international artists, when they're first getting started, they'll probably sing more in their native language just by necessity. And this is would be a, an example of a, a second album after I think Largo Bailone was a little more experimental. And there's mm-hmm. a lot more English singing on this album, which I think more people would prefer. So start here. If you don't know what you're getting into, start with this one rather than the other one. I guess it's a better place to start. I don't know that I necessarily prefer it more than mm-hmm. Largo Bailone, than the de- 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 debut being more in English and more pop will be a better place to start. I should also mention that although he is somewhat obscure, he has opened up on stage for more famous acts such as Animal Collective and Scorpions, and certainly many of them would be considered more pop or experimental. Being a uh, novelty album, mm-hmm. you would only listen to, you know, to break up the his monotony of what you listen to, which 
is I know not the case for you because you're always listening to their mental stuff. I don't think so. I think this could make it into a normal rotation for somebody. How many times do you think you've heard it? Well, I'm not a good example because I don't really have a rotation. I just get obsessed with a band and listen to them exclusively for a month and then rarely ever listen to them again. I've probably heard it 10 times. That's a lot, I'd say, still. I think a lot of people actually do follow your listening patterns. I know several people who are obsessive about it and they'll play something again and again and again. I just don't think I could listen to this twice in a row or even more than once every few months anymore. I mean, it's true that when you said, okay, Hannah, do your homework and re-listen to this, I did once. And then (laughs) I was like, I should do it twice. And my brain was like, no. (laughs) Well, it would have helped with uh, probably remembering the titles a little bit more. But if you get the idea and you know what it sounds like and you can describe it and why you like it, that's fine. If we compare this to other albums, can you think of any other music that sounds like what he's doing or that uses a similar technique? I know we saw Emily Wells live. Yeah, I don't have the breath. I mean, she uses the same pedal board and I've definitely seen other artists use the same kind of pedal board thing, particularly live. Imogen Heap is like, I feel like a colliery version of this because she uses a five-dimensional pedal board that goes up on the ceiling. So I guess, <laughs> I guess her, but she, she doesn't sound like him. Interesting. Okay. A similar technique in live shows. Have you heard a lot of Bjork, specifically her Medulla album? Mm, I have heard a few Bjork songs. A few songs. Long, okay. So it just said long, long ago again. Apparently she's still all the way into the 2010s. She's had a lot of new albums. I haven't caught up fully, but her Medulla album is entirely acapella and I would compare it. She has a, I think, Razel and Mike Patton actually helping her out on vocals for an entirely acapella album. I think there's probably some mm-hmm. keyboards involved, but uh, she doesn't do all the vocals herself, but obviously the, the lead vocals are hers. So if mm-hmm. you like Bjork's Medulla, I think this should be a, a point of comparison. You don't rate albums. We've established that. <laughs> yeah. So would you give this one a thumbs up then? Or uh, yes, I would listen to it or not quite because you didn't want to listen to it twice. Yeah, I'd give it a thumbs up. I mean, if anything I listen to all the way through gets a thumbs up. Would you, sorry to put it in terms of competition again, if you had a choice of albums to listen to, you would choose Jesse Volume 2 all any day over over this one? Yes, absolutely. It has more to listen to. Okay. You can hear something different every time you listen to it. Whereas this one doesn't hold up to close listening as much. You're not going to hear it all the first time, but you are going to hear it all the fifth time. <laughs> okay. I wish I could press you and parse out whether your thumbs up is qualified or conditional or if whether you really like to listen to this. It sounds like you would rate this lower than Jesse Volume 2 and, and most of Jacob Collier's discography, but also that you would prefer this one Delta over Largo by Lone. So I'm trying to like relatively figure it out what you actually think. It's, like, it's not easy. Yeah, um, I just think, I think you're really forcing a comparison when there is no comparison to be made. All right. Ask yeah. me something last call that I'm not sure we really got into about whether something being accessible to me in terms of, oh, I might be able to do that mm-hmm. made it more or less likely that I would like it. Mm-hmm. And I think it's two different kinds of appreciation. Like I, I was thinking about it when I was listening to Jacob Collier and knowing like, okay, I could never do that. I know I could never do that. If I like went back to being two years old, I could maybe and just did my life over. But it, currently I could never do that. I enjoy listening to people do things I could never do because of the deep listening thing. I, I'll listen to it a hundred times, never hear all of it and be learning every new time I listen to it. So it's impressive in that way. But 
I do have a different kind of appreciation for the kind of music I think I might be able to do. I think it's more inspirational. Definitely listening to Hyperpotamus is more likely to make me want to sit down at my piano than listening to Jacob Collier. Because you, you look at that and you think, okay, that's cool. He did this thing with a seemingly simple set of tools. Again, not actually simple, but seemingly simple set of tools that's realistic for me to learn. So some artists that do that, even if they don't have as much repeatability i guess it's seductive in a way to listen to to something you think you might be able to do i like what you're saying about being inspired to do things do you think you more likely to want to make acapella music yourself after listening to either one of these i am given ideas for tools when listening to hyperpotamus hmm. like i, I want to get a pedal board after listening to him all right it's fun to experiment and play with these things but specific to acapella you have done acapella songs by yourself before right yeah. uh-huh. an experiment for you but not something that you want to pursue uh, at length or certainly not album length well i mean i think the first song i ever recorded with the intention of it being on an album was acapella. Right. But you wouldn't want to do an entire acapella album. Oh, sure. Why not? <laughs> well, you just haven't yet. You've, you've I, I usually leaned on your piano for, for the I don't think main. I have the vocal range for it. I think in order to do a successful acapella album, you really need a large vocal range. Or a collaborator or two. Yeah, no, I mean myself, though. Okay. You would be the headliner on the spine of the record, but obviously you would have featuring X, Y, and Z vocalists with you doing the bass line and so forth and doing the rhythm. No? I mean, asking asking me if I would like to write and arrange an acapella album is different, yes. Um, but I don't think that I could exclusively perform one. Well, as long as you get all the credit. <laughs> That's that might no, I, I didn't say that at all. I never. What do you mean, as you've said? I never never said that at all. No, this is, this is going back to the, the Graceland, Paul Simon thing. Oh, no, I said the opposite. I said he shouldn't be putting his name on that. No, I know, I know. I, that's why I'm, I'm trying to make the funnies. But oh. you're just getting mildly offended. <laughs> For me, rating this one is a little tough because, I, like I said, I like to rate things on how likely I am to want to listen to it. And I mentioned that I can only pretty much stand this. I get obnoxious, I, I will say, even to, to do so more than once every several months. I hadn't listened to this before we did this show for you know probably at least a year and so when i listened to it again i was like my interest was peaked again but again i don't think i'd want to play it on repeat or even listen to it again for another half a year at least so that should factor in but at the same time i recognize it's definitely a change of pace it's a novelty it'll cleanse the oral palate to listen to somebody playing an entire album for a half an hour without any actual instruments other than the voice so I think that deserves credit for novelty. And I waver on this. Should I give it a, an experimental 0.5 rating or should I just give it a straight up six that it's pleasant? So I guess I would, in the end, I'm going to commit to a 6.5 because I think it is interesting. And I do think it is obscure and deserving more recognition. And certainly people who are interested in acapella music will find it of interest. 6.5 out of 10. Okay. I forget what you gave Jacob Collier. A 5.5. <laughs> okay. And in terms of preference of listening, if I would much rather listen to this album because I can listen to it all the way through. Skipping tracks just annoys me. It's like, you know, I can't do things. I can't listen like I prefer in the background passively. I have to say, okay, I, I hate this song. I'm skipping it. It jogs me out of my groove, my blissful mental state of listening, mm-hmm. having to skip something on an album. As I mentioned, I think some of Collier's songs are amazing and fantastic and interesting to listen to, but others, you know, and, and certainly Hyperpotamus can be annoying, but I think it gets annoying on repeated listens rather than the first time you hear it, I, I have to turn it off. You were annoyed by Jacob Collier on the first listen such that you needed to skip half of his songs. Oh, yeah, absolutely. 
Absolutely, yes. I mean, especially for when he goes into you know vocal jazz and R&B, it's just not my thing. I, I need to do a scheduled digression on what annoys you so much that you turn it off. And for for you and your your mother, at, and some it sounds like being out of key will do it, or th- thinking that you're in key but not being. And for others, it's you know certain style or certain genre. Auto tune will do it. If if I can hear you doing auto tune, it's an auto turn off. <laughs> Auto tune is an auto turnoff for Hannah Backward. Noted. Even used artistically, there there is a guy who one of Jacob Collier's collaborators. I'm probably super offending him by not knowing his name. On Jesse Volume Three, uses just copious auto tune, just offensively copious auto tune. And like, I love the song, but I still get mad every time I hear it. <laughs> How do you love a song and get mad at it? Explain. It's only a small part of it. It's because he's a collaborator, so he does like a, a little bit of guest vocals in there. And it's only for, you know, 20 seconds. So that's how. An annoying, an angry part of the song, but not enough to make you not like it or make it, or turn it off. You can't. No, the, song, the song is great. And actually, it's one of my favorite songs. I just, okay, that's, it's All I Need featuring Mahalia and Ty Dolla Sign. Okay. And so it's Ty Dolla Sign that does the autotune, I believe. And he even no, does it artistically. I say it's like not the most offensive use of autotune, but still, no. <laughs> It offends you to the core of your being. Yes. So on that note. That's, like, that's not even, it's worse than thinking you're in tune and not being in tune. It's, you know, you're not in tune, but you don't care and you're not going to try. And so you're just going to let the computer do it for you and use the computer to make it more interesting, not just. Fix your problems. You in- color within the lines already. Come on. No, auto-tune is coloring within the lines. Oh, exactly, exactly. exactly. It's, it's coloring, coloring for you. Yes. It's, it's phoning it in, the equivalent of phoning it in for a movie role. Yeah. So. Yeah. You're not even doing the coloring. I think computer's doing the coloring. Yeah. So at least use the computer to color outside the lines if you're going to use a computer. Or to make it more intricate, at least, yes. Thank you for joining us, Hannah Backward. I hope we can have you again sometime if you can find some more obscure music that you'll tolerate. Have a good evening. You too.